Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys, Five Movies. Uh, this is Chris Gasperi. Frank Pelican. And we are back after an extended hiatus. Um, <clears throat> Frank, you want to tell them what happened? I uh, broke my leg yeah. and was laid up for, for a couple months, pretty much. <clears throat> yeah, so we're back now, um, hopefully with a better audio quality, too. I'm not going to give the details of that because it will make me look extremely stupid. So um, from this point on, it should only get better, I would hope, um, as I learn a little bit more about uh, these uh, technical issues. Um, so today, we are going to be focusing on something a little different than we've done before, uh, where we're going to take a specific director and look at their top five movies um, and who we ended up going with for the first time of doing this is David Lynch. So we're going to be doing the top five David Lynch movies. <clears throat> uh, what was your first Lynch movie? Huh. <clears throat> Probably Elephant Man, I guess. Mm. Either Elephant Man or Wild at Heart. Okay. Um, I think I bought them both at like a video clearance outlet. For like a, I don't know, like three dollars or something. Um, I think Elephant Man though is the first David Lynch movie I saw. Um, but in your teenage years, I know you've mentioned before, like you and your friends kind of became really enamored of David Lynch. Yeah, um, you've read a lot about him. Yeah, so I was really like fascinated with Lynch, mostly because of. Well, I mean, I loved Elephant Man and Wild at Heart and Blue Velvet. Um, Always liked Eraserhead when I was young, but I like Eraserhead a lot less now. Um, but, you know, I was really into reading about film and directors when I was a teenager. And I read, uh, I guess it's like Lynch on Lynch or something like that. It's just um, interviews and, you know, essays and stuff. But him, like, talking about, um, you know, his directing style and, like, his influences and whatnot. Um and then there was also Twin Peaks, you know, Fire Walk With Me, which we were uh, we were all pretty fascinated by. I think we were maybe the only people I knew that, like, actually enjoyed that movie mm-hmm. in its original um, original run, because people pretty much hated that movie. Yes, it's, it seemed like that. Yeah. Um, what do you think about Lynch as a personality? I mean, well, even the book that you're talking about, like Lynch on mm-hmm. Lynch, um, I'm assuming it's almost like a compilation yeah. of things because he's so reticent to talk about his own work a lot of times. Yeah. So talk about process and those kind of things, process and, you know, uh, you know cinematography and, you know, the uh-huh. elements of making film, but he doesn't talk about his movies. So, um, so he has become more personality because he doesn't talk about his movies. Like, how, how do you view him as a personality? I actually kind of appreciate that. Um, I think one of the worst things is like, I don't know, I guess, like, seeing the recipe, more or less, of, like, the final meal. Um, I don't like it when directors talk too much about, like, what their things mean or what you're supposed to interpret from film. I I enjoy interpreting things on my own mm-hmm. and not really being influenced. So when Lynch is, like, sort of, I don't know, like, abstract in the way that he describes what something is and whether or not... I mean, a lot of his things are very like dreamlike and psychological and so is it real is it like a metaphor and i like the fact that he allows you to just sort of glean those things for yourself and honestly he's a pretty interesting guy that just loves art and finds beauty in like small things and things that other people wouldn't necessarily find beauty in and he seems like he's a pretty decent human being overall Um, yeah i've seen a lot of interviews uh been 
distracting for some of this where a number of people called him a Boy Scout, um, which seems like a pretty apt description of like his morality kind yeah. of. Is. But he's Gordon Cole, so he's like right. the head of the FBI. And sure, right. I don't know. I mean, it's just, he's like, he's very simply pretentious, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, there still is a lot of pretent- like pretension to what he does. There is, but he doesn't... He's not being pretentious. No, it's just him right. being himself. Right. Which right. is, like, the simple aspect of it. Sure. He's just being, like, a person. Right. But as a person, he's got, like, these wildly, I don't know, like, lofty ideals about what things are. And But he presents it in a way that's, like, I think relatable. I don't know. No, I, absolutely, I, yeah. I mean, even when he talks <laughs> about things like transcendental meditation yeah. and stuff like that, it's very relatable and human. I mean, yeah, it's not. He's not trying to be the smartest guy in the room. It's just something he was interested in and learned about. And yeah, like, in I, fact, I, he looks like a simpleton at times. Sometimes, yeah, like because of how literal he can be when people ask him questions. I think I also really appreciate the fact that Lynch is really obsessed with. I mean, I and this comes more of like the DIY aspect of like his early years, like especially with Eraserhead. And, you know, some of his, like, films when he was a student and, you know, a beginning filmmaker. But the fact that he's really obsessed with the idea of, like, the sound and how he compiles sound and just the lengths that he would go to to record, like, his own music and his own sound for movies and the way that he's... Like, I love the fact that he's... And we'll talk about this a lot, I think, over the course of, like, these five movies. The fact that he's obsessed with, like, the loneliness of just like, abandoned places in America. Like, there's a lot of focus on places that you would just, like, gloss over as you're, like, driving past down the highway that he sort of, like, fixates on and finds, most of the time, like, horror in. But, you know, sometimes beauty, too. Mm -hmm. So. Um. He's a weirdo, but, I mean, he's a relatable weirdo. Sure, sure. Uh. And there's a lot of depth there. Hmm? Uh, to it. I mean, the... It's easy, I think, for some people to dismiss him as trying to be quirky or um, or, or being simple, yeah. Um, which we'll end up getting into with some of the criticism of him. But uh, it can uh, actually be infuriating at times too. I mean, especially when you look at like the build up to the third season of Twin Peaks, huh, yeah. and you were thinking that it might not ever happen, and he's so particular about the way he wants things yeah. that if it's not going to be, I mean, sometimes like as a fan, you almost would just rather take like 75% of a great idea just to get the to get the thing rather than have to wait for 100% of a great idea. And Lynch is definitely not somebody that's going to give you anything but 100% of what he thinks something should have been. Right. So, and like that's I mean it's it's admirable and like the end results are usually yeah. pretty even if it's not even if you don't necessarily like what you're seeing, it's it's pretty impressive and it can be sure. like but that's part of his process. I mean, like I see him talking using a fishing metaphor. It's like, you know, you have to want the ideas to come, he says. Yeah. And then it's like taking a fishing rod and tossing it in the water, and you're waiting for the ideas, and you get a piece, and then, you know, you, you, you keep throwing it back out there, and then you get another piece, and you add that piece on, and um, it's this kind of very uh, surreal, like, kind of yeah. metaphysical thing, which ends up translating similarly on screen. But, um, yeah, he is, he wants it to be the way he wants it to be, and I think, um, Probably the first movie we're going to talk about probably influenced a lot of that in some ways. Um, I I think he's one of the most... uh, What's... Like... Un... Like, no... People talk about Lynch a lot. But when you talk about, like, influential artists, I don't know that Lynch comes up enough. And I think that he's incredibly influential, both both in, like, television and film. Yeah. 
but in a way that like is kind of almost forgettable because it's not like aside from a couple movies that like like gained a lot of notoriety like it's almost like everything is under the radar you know and it's mm-hmm. just like it just happens and it's like I think people see it and it influences people, but there's not, like, a lot of bombast to it where, <clears throat> you know, you... Like, you look at something like... I mean, Twin Peaks is obviously going to always be the yeah. most famous, I think, piece in some way. But only because, I mean, it was on network television, right. you know, at a time when you had three options, basically, of what you were watching on sure. TV. And I think it, like, caught everyone off guard, including himself, mm-hmm. that it was as, you know, as popular and it, like, kind of, like, infused itself into, like, the, I don't know, the, just the general, like, consciousness as it did, mm-hmm. to the point where even, like, today, and I know that the the revival just happened a year ago, but even today, like, you know, Twin Peaks references are still, like, pretty, pretty, un, like, relatable to most people, I think. Sure, yeah. Um, that might be more from, like, The Simpsons and whatnot than anything else. It could be, but, uh, no, I, I, I think it's still there in yeah. a lot of ways. Um... Well, it's like, you know, you think about what Buffy did with, like, the little blonde, you know, Whedon, like, kind of, like, turning it on his head about the little blonde girl in the alley. Yeah. You know, and it's like, the thing that he's turning on its head is that she usually gets murdered. And in this case, you know... She's killing she's, the She's thing killing that, people, but yeah. it's like, what Laura Palmer was, was the little blonde girl in the alley that got murdered. You know, it's the thing that, like, you know, it's the fear at the heart of, like, almost, like, every, I think, small town, especially in the 1980s. The idea that the prom queen, you know, could be murdered. And then I think also, like, playing on the fears of the prom queen's not the girl you think she is. You know, so it's like, I I think he struck a chord there, like, with a lot of Americans. Well, yeah, I mean, exactly. It's like, it's like what's happening on the other side of town from where the like, leave it to Beaver lives. Right. You know what I mean? Like, what's... Yeah. Like, when you get past the picket fence and, you know, the colonial, like, single-family home, like, what's on the other side of the tracks from that? And I think that's what fascinates Lynch is... It is, yeah. Because we see it through yeah. a lot of these movies. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so, before we get into the first movie, and this is putting you on the spot, and you don't have to give me an actual number, but where's Lynch in terms of American directors? Top ten? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's top ten. Top five? Uh, that's tough. Maybe. Maybe. It depends because I think a lot of our greatest American directors at this point are still producing work, hmm. including Lynch himself. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's really hard to judge. Yeah. I mean, like you can look at somebody like Martin Scorsese, who's got like a huge, sure. you know, body of work, and most of it, you know, being at least like interesting or good. Yeah. Um, but there's plenty of people, I don't know, like, it's, like, do you put Jim Jarmusch up there, you sure. know, I mean, um, you know, John Cassavetes has got to be up there. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of directors from, like, the 50s and 60s, I think. I, I don't know. In terms of my favorite, I, I think Lynch is definitely top ten. Yeah. I don't know if, in a subject, like, an objective list, I don't know if Lynch. Do you think in terms of American directors, in terms of audio, is he the best? Because I would say it's probably between... No, I mean, it would be him. I mean, like, I, I, I was going to say Kubrick, but he's British. So, I mean... You know who's really good? And this is completely, like, off-tangent. Um, I think John Carpenter is actually... 
at sound. Yeah, like yeah. probably as good if not better than Lynch. I, it, he's one of those people that you don't really give a lot of credit to because of the genre he directs. Yeah. Like Lynch is, you know, even though he's making like horror and sci-fi and whatever, like Lynch is, is hard as making art art films, whereas mm-hmm. Carpenter's making, you know, grindhouse films. But Carpenter's pretty pretty amazing with his, the way that he... Carpenter's more audio. traditional with the sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But I mean, you think of like the soundtracks and stuff that Carpenter sure, like okay. is directly responsible for, and, and he's just he's he's pretty brilliant. But Lynch, Lynch definitely is, I think, the master of ambient sound yeah. in film, and like found like audio almost. I mean, there's a there's a pretty interesting like anecdote in um in an interview I read with them where when they were filming Eraserhead, a lot of what they would do is they would like make sounds in a bathtub so they could get the echo because they didn't have anywhere else to do it. And so this is a guy that's, you know, just wants to find sound anywhere and is willing to, like, create that sound from anything just to make, like, these otherworldly, like, soundtracks to his films. So. Right. No, I mean, he's, he's a fascinating dude. Um, okay, let's go ahead and jump into the first uh, movie here. Number five on the list is Dune. <clears throat> um, so he directed this, well, he started directing, I guess, in, like, 82, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, maybe even late 81, and, like, goes on for roughly two years in between pre-production and filming, um, and this thing that ended up being commercially a disaster. Um, in today's standards, Rotten Tomatoes um, has it at 55% for mm-hmm. the critic scores, um, 66% for audience scores. It's actually surprisingly high. Honestly, much higher than I would think it would be. Yeah, it was a little bit. So I think it's um, aged better through the years, probably, yeah. considering um, the the earlier reviews of it. Um, so why did you go ahead and choose this to be in the top five? So I think that Dune might be, to me, um, one of maybe his most like visually interesting movie. Like I love the aesthetic of Dune. Um, I'm not a big sci-fi fan, so I don't particularly care about, I don't know, I, I, things don't need to make sense to me in science fiction, I just prefer for them to look good, mm-hmm. and I really like that early 80s aesthetic of, like, like the, the shields and the way the spaceships look, and, like, I love the way, um, like, the costumes in that movie, like, I, I love the way the Harkonnen and, like, the Atreides, like, the way they look, and how different they are. Like, the Harkonnen really look like these, like, depraved sadists. Like, not even, like, from what they do, which is disgusting in the movie, but just seeing them. You know, like, Sting is, like, pretty intimidating, you know, in his ridiculous get-up. Like, it's it's pretty, like, I don't know. It it definitely elicits, like, an emotional reaction. Um, I am not a fan of Dune. I've read Dune a couple times, and I do not like that book. Including, like, recently, I actually borrowed it from you and read it last year. And I just do not enjoy that book. So I think the fact that he takes the most interesting things about Dune, which is, you know, the idea of, like, the Maldiv, the Spice, the Sandworms, the fact that, like, Arrakis is, like, this giant, like, world with all these, like, secrets of the universe hidden in it. Um, I can't remember what they are, the, like, the psychic, like, slugs that, like, pilot the ships and stuff. Right. I mean, all that stuff just becomes more fascinating because I think Lynch, I don't know, he just captures this weird, like, almost dirty, like, the future isn't this clean, you know, pristine place. 
which I find really boring in movies. Like, the future is this dirty, you know, it's just people are still just gross, like, in the future. And I don't know, like, I... I mean, it's all over the place. And I think that's partially because, like, Dune is kind of just this metaphysical, like, horseshit for the most part, um, to me. Yeah. Um... I don't know, but like the way that he takes that that horseshit and he like kind of melds it into, I mean, it, a little bit. It's, I know that like the his final like unreleased cut is like super long, but like a little long maybe, and maybe it needed to be longer. You know, we've talked about that before. Yeah, I would say um, about an hour, fifteen minutes maybe. Yeah, but I I just like I love the way it looks. I I love Comic Lachlan in it. Like I think he's great as Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like, all the Harkonnen, I think, are amazing. Like, they're... I saw Dune when I was, I don't know, eight, maybe, or nine. Like, I had Dune toys because I loved that movie so much when I was a kid. And yeah, it really... Kind of same. Like, just the way that, like, everything looked in that movie. I don't know. I just... Yeah, I mean... <clears throat> um, there's a lot of things Lynch does really well in that movie to me. I, I like the costuming... I like the space stuff. I like the ships. Mm-hmm. I like the casting choices for the most part in that movie. Um, I do not like... I, even giving it credence for the times, I do not like the things like the she- the human shields yeah. like over top of people. I think it looks really hokey. Um, but it's, it's special effects back then. And they, like It would have been done better had it been more advanced. But... You know, but okay. So I don't think I don't know that I like it as much if it's done better. I like the hokiness of it. Like I like the fact that it looks unbelievable. Basically, that like you can tell that it. I don't know. It just it just feels like it looks like the equivalent of somebody taking uh, squares in MS Paint yeah, and, yeah. and putting them together. Oh yeah, and then like somehow putting that over top on a cell <laughs> on the character itself as they're moving. Um, so it just looks like muddy shit like around the character. Yeah, I don't know how anybody fights in them because they look like... Right, it, it didn't make any sense to me. Completely like, unwieldy. Yeah. But like at the same time, I don't know. Like, I yeah, just... I mean, whatever. I ignored it. I mean, it, it's not that big of a deal. Um, it's a minor thing to me. I was more interested this time because I did not like it as a child. Mm. And I... Um, Watching it a few weeks ago, I liked it better, but I still wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, I see what Lynch was trying to do, I think, with it, and a lot of a lot of things I think he succeeded. But I think it goes back to I actually find the second and third book of the series. I think I like the books a little bit more than you, but I don't like Herbert's writing style. Yeah. Um, and I do think he's a little pretentious about all of it. So, but I actually like the second and third books much better out of that series. So the first one kind of just always bored me. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a big part of the movie is that I think it's just kind of dull at times. Like you're waiting for it to get there and it's particularly with the cut of the movie, I think it harms it. Like I know that's not Lynch's cut. You know, yeah, I yeah. didn't watch the, the Lynch cut of it. Well, which, sure. Which I mean, he Alan Smithy that movie in some instances. So. Right. So I, um, I think the cut works in some ways. I, I can see what Lynch was trying to do with the dreamlike quality of Paul. 
And I think that stuff's fascinating, like, in the sense of, as he has premonitions of the future, and the premonitions start to come true, and it's like the future and the past all become one, and these are themes that we start seeing play out in other, you know, works of his, and it's like, Paul ends up taking on this quality of the dreamer Uh uh, that Lynch talks about a lot, and has a lot in his movies, and the way he films Paul from that point forward where it's like he's re- like Paul's removed like the camera's re- removed a little bit from him like it's like there's too much space in the frame yeah like with Paul's head to kind of show that Paul's not really there it's like he's everywhere all at once and it's like I thought it was fascinating to show this kind of godlike character develop um, and time just starts moving quickly yeah. like throughout the second half and it's like it's almost like you're experiencing time as Paul experiences time. Here are the major events of Paul's life, and those are the things that matter, not the little aspects. Um, but I also think by cutting all that, like, you know, which is a lot of the novel he's cutting out at that point, while I think that's fascinating, I think it also hurts, like, minor characters and stuff like that that I think are interesting. Like, was it Gurney? Yeah. Like, you know, like Patrick Stewart gets, like, no screen time, no. really, in that Very movie. Little. Um, where it's like, I think Patrick Stewart, like, had he had more screen time, would nail that role. But I mean, um, so I think it hurts some things like that. There's like no character development. <laughs> like, um, I mean, don't, it, uh, don't you think in a lot of ways, though, that's the problem with like the Messiah story in any film, really? Yeah, sure. I mean, like, so to compare it to a more modern movie that I wouldn't disagree with that is no. a very similar idea, like, look at something like The Matrix, you know, I mean, the best part of and I, I, I do not enjoy the Matrix trilogy, but I like the first Matrix movie. And the best part it's of that movie is. is the end when Neo finally realizes his power and just, like, you know, kicks the crap out of the Smiths. But for most of that movie, you're like, all right, buddy, like, you're this guy, like, be this guy. And it's just, like, that's the thing is you can't, you can't make the Messiah the Messiah in Act 1 or else there's really nothing, you know what I mean, to like... But he comes damn close in this movie. Like, that's what I find, like, fascinating about it is, like, it's like, basically, Paul gets on... Arrakis. Arrakis. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets on Arrakis, and it's like, he's there enough to where, you know, his father's killed yep. in that battle, and it's like, him and his mother are in the desert, and it's like, he has part of his premonition come true. And from that point on, like, he's the Messiah. Like, I mean, he does it, like, in the middle of that, too, I would Yeah, say. that's true. It's, like, and it's like, and it's like, and it's a ballsy. Yeah. Like, um, it's, uh, But then again, you're trying to fit, like, you, you know, you said it yourself, like, you're trying to fit, like, a pretty, pretty dense novel into yeah. two hours and 15 you're minutes. You're 3.30 into two hours, yeah. yeah. Um, so. But I think the way he does it is fascinating to some degree, and the way yeah. he films it is fascinating to show that kind of dreamlike quality of the Messiah. It's like, also, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it's the only time Lynch has directed something that's not his own. Yes. Like source um, material? Elephant Man was based off the of journals. That some, and a script that somebody else wrote. Yeah, but then true. Lynch one and Lynch and a couple other people one rewrote that script. Yeah. So it kind of it's it, that's an amalgam. Um, Elephant Man. This is the only thing he's ever adapted from himself from source material and done. So I think as an adaptation, it probably works pretty well. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, and again, like I hate. Yeah, you know, right, but yeah. to me, it's it, it's about 
it makes it palatable to me. Like, it actually makes the story interesting, whereas when I read the book, I'm not interested in that story. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is that, you know, originally it was supposed to be, um, Jodorowsky was supposed to do Dune. Yes. And they, I can't remember the exact story. Like, I've seen that documentary, but, you know, it went to Lynch. But everyone talks about how great, like, Jodorowsky's Dune would be, but looking at, like, his, you know, the the designs that they show of, like, the spaceships and the way the characters look like, I think Lynch's version is more... Like, it's much more interesting to me, because Jodorowsky's is more, like, hippie-ish, and Lynch is, like, grounded in, like, that industrialized, like, grime of... These are people that are, like, a constant war, like, in the universe, basically, and they're dressed appropriately like that, so I don't know. The more I'm talking about it, it sounds the more, like, I liked Dune, I realized. Yeah. Um, I, so I'm trying to think of, like, what my misgivings about it are, is I think as much as I got what he was doing with the dreamlike quality, is I think that it's, like... It felt like a fragmented, it felt clunky in the way at times that the plot was executed. I agree with that. Um, and, and, it, and it felt a little, I don't want to use the word mess, but it felt felt rushed. And it probably was because of the editing. Oh, yeah. Um, but For as rushed as like so a it's like it, it's, The things I'm criticizing might have, do, might have more to do with the cut than it was actually Lynch himself. Yeah. So... I, I can at least give that, like, kind of caveat to the whole thing. Um, <clears throat> did you hear that he, um, that Lucas approached him to do uh, Return of the Jedi ever? No, that would have been crazy. Yeah, I don't know what that would have looked like. I don't know. I would have loved to have seen it, though. Um, yeah, he um, at least tells the story somewhere that uh, he got called to meet with Lucas, and it's like, it was all very kind of like cloak and dagger of him going to pay phones and calling yeah. people and getting a, like telling you go here and get this car. And he drove and like he meets with Lucas and he gets in and he says he already has a headache by the time like he like sits down like in the chair um, in Lucas's office. And Lucas is like, you know, kind of talking to him about Star Wars and is like, I want to show you some stuff. And he takes him upstairs and he shows him like he's models of Wookiees that they have built and Lynch says he was getting more of a headache at that point um and then uh Lucas wanted to go to lunch so like he took him in this like you know fast sports car and he says by this point he has a migraine like you know the top down and they get to lunch and he doesn't want to eat and like you know it's this fancy restaurant and Lucas just gets a salad and you know, he's trying to, like, talk to him about this, like, you know, movie and, like, how he conceptualizes it. And Lynch says, like, by this point, like, he wants nothing to do with this movie. And he, like, immediately goes, like, after the meeting is, like, I can't do this. Like, you know, I'm not doing this. Um, <clears throat> but, um, which I think is funny. It's, like, that Lin that's, that's Lynch's visceral reaction to... What sounds like a fairly typical Hollywood story. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like he has that experience and it's like it nauseates him. Um, you know, he reacts poorly to it. Um, but damn, would it have been interesting to see Tatooine, um, you know, with like Lynch at the helm. Um, you know, even though I love Return of the Jedi, but I mean, like, yeah. um, it would have been really interesting to see what he would have done with something like that. Um, but Dune getting remade. Yeah. Next year? Two years? Something like that? Yeah, the guy who did Blade Runner. So yeah. I'm, I'm pretty excited for that. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see what he can do with it. Um, any um, any other things to say about Dune, Ron? No. I mean, for me, again, like, the reason it's number five is just because, like, I love the way it looks so much. And yeah. 
it's it's so different from anything else really that he's he's done that it, I don't know. I think that on that merit alone, like because it's it's just so bold, and even though it has its failings, like it's 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 pretty fascinating to watch. Okay, so we're gonna go ahead and move on to number four. Um, number four is um, Lynch's most recent movie, um, two thousand and six, uh, which is Inland Empire. Um, it uh, was Lynch filming on digital. Mm-hmm. Really, for the first time, because it started out as um, rabbits, right? Isn't that the first thing that comes of it? Is like the short, the rabbits shorts, like he, that he like creates like that three part rabbit series, and then from there he starts like adding on scene, scene the scene. I honestly, there. I don't even know anything about the production of this movie or anything. Really? Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. Is I think rabbits came out in like '04 or something like that, or '05. Um, so it's just the scenes from that movie of the rabbits. Hmm. Um, and then he incorporates that into the actual movie itself. Yeah. Um, and then it's, I can't remember, I want to say it might have been the sequence, I might be misquoting this, it might be the homeless sequence, I'm not sure, it like comes to him next, and he like films that, like towards the end of the movie, uh, with the homeless people, mm-hmm. like, um, and then... And then he just starts, it's his metaphor about fishing. It's like he just starts having ideas. And then once he had so many ideas and filmed all these little things, then he just created a story around it. Um, so it's like, it's, it's basically like 10 scenes. And then he just started like creating like a story around the whole thing. Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. Right. Um, so. I prefer not to know that though, honestly. Yeah. yeah. So, um, um, I mean, good reviews overall. Seventy three percent on Rotten Tomatoes um, for critics, seventy five for audience um, reviews. Um, what? Um, why did you pick this over? And I'll, I'll give you a context. Why did you pick this over Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive or Wild at Heart, which is also not on our list? Um, <laughs> yeah, Wild. Well, I would just argue that Wild at Heart to me doesn't to me doesn't fall within those three necessarily. Wild at Heart's a straighter story, where I think that those three Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire are all LA stories yeah, that are right. all have the same kind of storytelling to them, like to some degree. Um, is it a dream? Is it real? Like, you know, what the hell is going on? I don't. I don't know. I don't really have an answer to that. Like, I enjoy. I, I do not like Mulholland Drive particularly, mm. yeah. um, but I have not watched it since maybe the second time I saw it, which is like the same year it was released sure. on DVD. Um, Lost except Highway, for, except for that one scene, right? Oh, the homeless man scene. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the diner scene. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that a few times. Yeah, so it's, right. it's, it's, it's really good. Yeah, it's really fun. Um, Lost Highway's all right, I guess. Like I, I enjoy that movie, yeah. but. I don't know, like, so I I hated Inland Empire when I first saw it, Mm -hmm. like, and when I say hated, I mean I absolutely loathed Yeah, we had a conversation about it in 06, 07. Yeah, and it was honestly, it was was Harry Knowles' fault, like, any full news, (laughs) because he wrote this, like, rambling review of it where he's talking about his interpretation of it, and it's about him and the people he knows, and... Then I was, like, automatically, like, I hate anything that, like, Harry Knowles, like, loves. And then I watched it, and it just, I think that he, his voice was in my head the whole time. 
And I was watching it from his perspective, and it just made me, like, despise it. So when you first brought this idea up, you know, for the Lynch movies, I figured, well, I should watch some of the ones that, you know, I haven't really seen that many times or that I didn't enjoy, and I watched it again. And honestly, watching it without any preconceived notions about what I was getting ready to see, um, I find it to be, like, an incredibly uncomfortable and terrifying movie in the fact that it is so disjointed. And I think it really, whereas I understand that like, you know, there are those, whatever, like those abstract concepts in Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. But I, I still feel that like narrative wise, both of those movies function more as like cohesive films. Whereas Inland Empire is just this like nightmare after nightmare where everything is terrible. And you never really know, like, when you think you know what's happening, he changes the context of what's happening, and then maybe something else is happening, and, you know, wh- who who is Laura Dern's character, really? Like, is she the Nikki, actress? Is Nikki she, is the actress yeah, the prostitute? Sue is the character? Yeah, like, all those things. And I honestly... Not a huge fan of like things filmed on 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 digital video, mm-hmm. and especially from like from the late nineties to the mid two thousands when that was the big thing. Like with um, it's like Harmony Kareen or whatever, like that whole like collective that was filming everything on digital video. But for some reason, like it just I don't know. It's got this weird like like cinema verite thing that for some reason like really works well with Lynch's like crazy aesthetic. I think. Yeah, I agree. And it makes everything really grim and, I don't know, um, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Like, it's very menacing. And it just, like, it makes you feel uncomfortable the whole time you're watching it. And honestly, even though it's it's pretty long, right? Like, it's close to three hours or over three hours? It's like right at three hours. Um, It's either a couple minutes under or a couple minutes over. I don't feel there's any part of that movie that is like a lull or drags. Like, I just feel like... Like, you move from scene to scene, and even the scenes that are, like, quiet still have this, like, weight to them. And I don't know, I just, I, visually, I think it's fascinating. Um, I I guess I kind of made up my own story, like, where I just take it as being, like, the cursed film is, like, a real thing. Mm. I tried not to read too much into, like, you know, did she really suffer from, like, some traumatic childhood abuse, and, like, is she really, like, a prostitute, and, like, the Hollywood portion is her fantasizing out of her life. And I know there's, like, a lot of interpretation that you can make there, but if you just look at it as a, like, not a straight horror movie, but just as a horror movie, basically, about, like, these people that are trapped by this cursed production. Um, What is it, like, Axon... Oh, the characters? No, that's, like, the... Oh, oh, the... The thing they're listening to, the radio play, the the radio play, and it's the thing she sees... The longest running, you know, radio play. And then 47, or whatever the name, 45, the name of the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, When you look at it like that, like, maybe they are just kind of trapped in, like, this, like, repeating loop of, like, these terrible things. I don't know, like, it's... I like all the actors in it, you know? I'm not a big fan of Laura Dern, but I like Laura Dern a lot in it. Yeah, we talked about this very briefly a few weeks ago, like, yeah, um... More the interpretation aspect yeah. of it, like which I'm more usually interested in about like these kind of things. But um, I guess the first thing is uh, well, the first thing is that after you mentioned Harry Knowles, now some point we need to do like top five worst Harry Knowles reviews of all mm. time. 
Um, you ain't gonna find them online anymore. <laughs> <that much. laughs> uh, me too. Um, <laughs> and then I like the first hour of this movie a lot. Hmm? I think basically after she realizes she was the thing that was on set that caused the noise, Mm -hmm. I think it becomes a jarring mess for about 45 minutes. Okay. I'll give you that. That I think is boring, almost, in that it's like, it's where it's where I think, if you're going to interpret it, a lot of the interpretation comes from, but it's so fragmented that it's like, I can't... Lynch talks a lot about feelings. He yeah. wants people to feel. And it's like, I can see that in a lot of his, like, Lynch can get an emotional reaction out of me at times. I don't feel the emotion in this movie at all. Really? I, I feel... This is one of the movies where I feel most removed from those characters. And, like, it's a study. Like, of... It's almost like the movie that almost is asking you to interpret it like it's a hard final exam. Hmm. Like, I just feel completely removed from it. I have no emotional connection to any of those characters. Um, <clears throat> Don't you think almost so, like... You know, when you're trying to remember something and you have a piece of what you're trying to remember, but you can't get quite all of it, and it's, like, maddening almost to have, like, that little piece in your mind, and, like, that's kind of what I feel like this movie is, where, like... I think that's fabulous. I think I think that's exactly right, because after just watching and talking about it a few weeks ago, it's almost like a dream. It, it really is almost like a dream. It does feel like that. Because it's like, I'm having a hard time remembering... It's almost like it's a dream, like, when you wake up in the morning and throughout oh, yeah, the day yeah. it disappears. It's almost like that's what that movie is. Is like, now that I'm, like, a few weeks away from it, the second time watching it, like, I'm still having a hard time, like, remembering, like, exactly what happens and what I thought about that movie in terms yeah. of the interpretation of it. But, I mean, like... Because I remember I had this, like, Me Too, like, you know, um, interpretation almost, where it's like Lynch was actually, like, ahead of his time a little bit in terms of... You know, showing and representing, like, you know, women kind of, like, overcoming, like, they're... Yeah. I, and it's, I can't remember that argument anymore, because you're right, it's kind of like, you're, I've forgotten it. I mean, that's the thing, is that every, every female character in that movie is basically threatened in some way by a male character. Yes. Like, they're in danger. And I think, like, when, when you read, like, what he said about it, the brief, brief thing is like a, a woman in trouble, right? Is how he described it. a woman in trouble. So, and that's the thing, like, <clears throat> the scene where she burns the hole in the, um, the fabric to like right. see in the other thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like the anticipation that he builds in scenes like that. And it's, it's just that, and again, like I watched it in whenever it came out on DVD. So mm-hmm. 2006, 2007. Right. And did not think about that movie for a decade. Right. You know, never looked at... I, I think, like, maybe I saw the scene where she runs up to the camera really fast, like, once or yeah. twice in, like, right. a top ten scariest, like, whatever, moments. In, yeah. But anyway, so... He does it better in Twin Peaks stuff. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
It's not even that scary. It's not right, even that well done there. Yeah, um, but anyway, it's watching it again and not remembering much of the movie. I felt like palpable dread anytime a scene would change. Just like what terrible thing is going to happen. You know, when it would shift or when, you know, it's really uncomfortable. Like the scene where um, the actress that plays uh, the main actor in, in the, the fake film's wife or whatever, um, when she's like pulling the screwdriver out of her side and she's in the police station, super uncomfortable. You right, know? yes. Yeah. They're in the backyard and like mm-hmm. the... Um, whatever, the cookout, and, like, mm-hmm. the guy's got, like, blood, but is it... Ca- I, I don't know, there's just so many... And again, like, you're probably right, it probably... Like, well, you said that that's what Lynch said he did, you know, it's just, like, disjointed scenes that he connected through some, like, forced narrative, but because of that, like, it really does feel like you're moving in a dream from, like, one nightmare to another, where, yeah. like, you're not waking up. And then when you think she wakes up, you know, when they, they call cut, and it's, right. like, um... What, what's the name of the movie? Like, Always Blue something? Blue oh, Stars Forever or something? Yeah, right. It's, um, it's almost like a title you can't remember. Like, no no More Blue Skies or something like something, that? Yeah, yeah. When she wakes up and you think, like, okay, well, this is it. Like, no it Blue really, Skies Tomorrow or yeah, something? That's yeah, is that it? Yeah. Um, it really was just like, it, you really were just watching the production of a film. But then it's not because then it continues on. Right. Like, it's, it's very, very much, I don't know. I mean, definitely out of all the movies on this list, and maybe all of Lynch's movies in general, except for Eraserhead, I would say, the least sound, like, narrative that he's ever done. And, like, the yeah. least, like... And I, I will say this, I don't think it's forced. Not in Lynch's mind. No. Like, I think I think from our perspective, maybe, it, like, yeah, we, when we hear how he put it together, it's forced, but I think that's how Lynch works. Yeah. And, like, I think, I think that narrative to him was always there, just <clears> revealed. I, I was... If I'm going to, like, try to summon him, I think he would say it reveal itself to him. Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, like, he's filming a scene with a bunch of prostitutes dancing to the locomotion. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, what... Yes. Like, what narrative did he have in mind? But in the context of when you're watching that movie, it's, like, sad and lonesome feeling, like, to watch that. Like, you yes. have these, like, attractive half-naked women, like, dancing. Yeah. And it just feels like... Like, even though it's surreal, it's like you're watching something you're not supposed to be watching. And in a lot of ways, like, I I can't watch a lot of movies like that, and it's not something that I like to subject myself to. But every once in a while, like, I really enjoy watching something where I feel like it's almost, like, forbidden cinema. And I like the fact that it ties into the idea that this is a cursed production and you're watching, like... Right. Like, kind of like what what makes The Ring scary the first time you see it is the fact that this is a videotape that has, like... These images you're never supposed to see, and then you die when you watch it. Right. And it's kind of the same thing, where, like, this is something that was never supposed to be filmed, and they're basically tempting, like, dark forces by doing it. And yeah. then whatever other interpretation there is, you sure. know. Sure. Yeah. I think it lends itself to it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think talking about the interpretation adds 30 minutes on to this conversation. Oh, yeah. So, I, I don't think it's worth getting into it. I mean... I, I know I was moving further away from that the actress was the real character, like... Yeah, whereas to when me, like, that's... Right. That's, that I, I honestly... And, and I definitely that. see how that works, yeah. where the actress is the main character, but I was actually starting to move away from that idea and think that it was actually the girl in the room that she saves yeah. is, like, the main character. 
because she's watching it all on television, and I think it's like some sort of representation. Lynch says that at one point in an interview I saw him do is um, talking about where ideas come from. Is um, it's like a television turns on in your head. Um, so I, I wonder if because she ends up seeing herself on television and the Laura Dern character on television and the Rabbits thing is on television yeah. when she's watching. Like, I, I wonder if that's not all in her head and the Laura Dern actress is a representation of her possibly. Like her idealized self or whatever. Right, yeah. Like yeah, the sure. thing like, you know, well, you think it's like, what, what story does he tell about L.A. a lot? Like, which is the young girl coming out there and yeah. trying to make it and then... You know, not making it and, you know, trying to imagine what life would be like if they made it. I mean, that's Mulholland Drive. Yeah. And I wonder if he's telling that story again in some ways. And Laura Dern is like her idealized self who ends up killing, was the Phantom? Uh-huh. You know, but then the Phantom turns into Laura Dern yeah. in the face. And it's like, I wonder if it's not like some sort of almost, I know he's very much a Jungian I, I think that's where I was going with this. Like, it's very much like, um, it's like you're the jailer of yourself. Yeah. And, you know, that in some ways it's like the self-realized woman, you know, like kind of coming out of her stupor or struggle. I mean, um, I think the fact that you can interpret this movie in like yeah, dozens of ways sure, yeah. speaks volumes to how how good it really is. And honestly, to me, it's like I I really enjoy movies like that. Like I like I like things where like nothing is like laid out for you in a clearer way. And even though I like I really appreciate like a strong narrative, like I also like having some mystery. Yeah, no, I mean, I obviously I do too. I mean, like uh, I like being able to think about those kind of things. I, it, it's not that aspect of it that bothers me. It's the aspect that like I think really when it comes down to me, like. My big criticism of this movie is I think it's too long at times. It is, it is you know, too um, for Lynch's style, it's too long. Yeah, probably um, like thirty-five minutes. Yeah, I, yeah, um, and that is an arbitrary, like exactly thirty-five minutes, and that movie's fantastic. <laughs> um, uh, it sounds right, <laughs> so I'm just going to go ahead yeah, with yeah. it. You know, um, thirty-five minutes, sixty-five minutes, like whatever, whatever <laughs> you want. You know. <laughs> 90, 95 minutes. Um, it's going to be like 40 minutes short. You know, uh, I mean, what's the, what's the last number is 90 minutes. Is that how long my ideal? 85. Is, 85 is my ideal. Right. Okay. Um, it's like, um, I, I think it's the fact that I don't feel anything for those characters. Like the, I mean, the whole thing is based around, it's very hard to sympathize with those characters. Yeah. And it's like, you know, the whole thing is based around the guys, like, Devin, like, mm-hmm. is that, Devin's a dick. Playing Billy. Yeah, playing Billy. Billy's a dick. Billy's kind of a dick. Well, he's like... It's a, all based off of an affair. He's basically yeah. like a slimy, like, um, Flannery O'Connor character. Right, more yeah. Or less. Sure. That's absolutely right. And it's like, both the character and whoever the character is and whoever the real person is, they're, they're both assholes. Yeah. You know, the husband's an asshole. You know, she's no great shakes either. No. Um, no, nope. yeah, no, no one's sympathetic in that. And it's like, I, so I have a hard time sympathizing with the characters, and then it's like their dilemma, it's like, it's interesting to me, like, you know, what's going on, like you said, about, like, the, the cursed movie and all this yeah. other stuff, and it's like, but it's like, I can't get invested in it like I can his other projects. Like, I can actually feel something 
Because he's really good at that at times. Like, you look at Mulholland Drive, and it's like... I don't even know what the... What is, what is, what is the club in Mulholland Drive? Oh, I don't remember. Do you remember that? Yeah. Um, but it's like, you know what I'm talking about? The club where they go in, the two of them are sitting there in the mm-hmm. theater, and they're singing, and like, you know, and they start crying. And it's like... And I'd have to watch... I haven't watched that in a long time, but it's like... You make me want to watch Mulholland Drive again. Right, but it's like that my better scene, judgment. <laughs> Like, brings out, like, almost, like, tears in me. And I don't even know why. Like, I don't even know what the fuck is happening, like, in that scene. Like, I think I do. Like, or I did at one point. Again, it's like a dream almost now. But it's like, I did one time I, I had, you know, that's a easy, that's not a hard way to figure out. Like, you know, like, you know, when you watch it, um, when it comes down to it, like, Inland Empire is much more dense. But... Mm-hmm. Um, something demented. So I can't remember what the um the club's name is, but it's like it, there's nothing like that in this movie to me. Like you know that like draws me in and like almost brings me to the point of like you know physical emotion. Yeah, and it's like that's what I mean when I say I'm very removed. Like Fire Walk with me even like makes me feel certain things. Like you know throughout that movie and episodes of Twin Peaks that he directs, like, makes me feel things, and, you know, um, Blue Velvet, not as much, but I mean, there, there's certain movies he does that's, like, draws me in and makes me feel for some of these characters, and, um, I, I just don't feel that here. Yeah. I, that's, I, that's my biggest criticism, I think, of this movie. That doesn't bother me. I don't yeah. care. Yeah. I don't, I don't need to like a character. Yeah. To find him interesting. Actually, I, I think for three hours, I think I need to have some sort of emotional investment. I mean, for this movie, like, I actually prefer that I don't like the characters, honestly, because mm-hmm. it's just you're watching terrible things happen to them mm-hmm. for three hours. For three hours. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, you want to move on to the next yeah, movie? Yeah, Okay, so, um, number three on your list is uh, Fire Walk With Me, yep. which he makes in 1992, um, after the series cancellation of Twin Peaks. Um, Fire Walk with Me being a prequel, um, and what, slight, like, three minutes of sequel, maybe, like, or something, like, in that movie, um, to Twin Peaks, and most of it all prequel, though. But who knows when that's happening in time, so. Sure. Yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, critics didn't, like you mentioned earlier, critics did not like this when it first came fans out. Didn't like didn't, it fans didn't like it either, you know. Um, and... I'm going to say in hindsight, I get it, because I wasn't watching Twin Peaks when it first aired because I was nine years old. Yeah. I mean, but um, I can I can see it, you know, especially for somebody who just watched the show and liked the show and was kind of a casual fan and like you know, um, like I can see where people didn't like this because what Lynch does in this new season, and I do not want to talk about these seasons, but what he does in this new season. He does in this movie. Yeah. He does it. It's only two hours long, so it's like he does it less. But it's the same damn withholding and almost making you wait in Fire Walk With Me that he does in this new season. It's like a joke to him to some degree is like being withholding. I don't know that it's... Are you trying to get me to make an Arrested Development joke here? Um, Oh. With the withholding withholding (laughs) joke? Um, I, I don't look at it like that. Like, I... I think the constraints of a major network television series to tell a story were probably very difficult for him to work under. Mm-hmm. And I think that being freed from the idea that he had to tell 
a story, like, made it so he... He's showing you more of this universe without telling you what happened mm-hmm. after the end of the second season of Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it in a way where he's explaining why Twin Peaks happened in a lot of ways. Yes, absolutely. And you have to remember that. So you had the secret diary of Laura Palmer, you know, had I had already come out. Mm-hmm. Um, Twin Peaks was super popular. People were really like... I think titillated and fascinated by this, like, dark underbelly of this, you know, seemingly, like, idyllic, you know, mountain town or whatever. And so Lynch is is showing you, like, the real, like, underbelly and going more into the whole idea of, like, the Lodge and these outsiders that prey on, like, human weakness. Sure. Um, and I think... I, I honestly, I think people were disappointed because they wanted to see, they wanted it wrapped. You know, they wanted to see a continuation of whatever story was told. Like what, what happened to Cooper? You know, Cooper's possessed by Bob. I want to see what happens to Cooper. They, right. They wanted to see the aftermath of that mirror scene. Mm-hmm. 100%. And they, and they wanted to. Where's Annie? And they wanted to, right. Where's Annie? And they wanted to see Dale Cooper. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, that's what they wanted, is that's what they loved about Twin Peaks sure. from anything else besides just the quirkiness. Yeah, the, the pie, the was, coffee. They, they loved those elements yep. of it, but they loved Dale Cooper. And that's what they wanted, I think that's why people were disappointed. But what what makes the movie so great, I, I don't know, it's hard for me to say if it's a great movie independent of Twin Peaks as a series. Because I don't think you can say that. Like, there's a lot of really fascinating visuals in it, and there's a lot of really, like, honestly terrifying stuff, but it really only works if you know why it's terrifying. Yes. So, not being a Twin Peaks fan, or somebody who's, and you know, in hindsight, like, I I, I saw that movie, I think I saw that movie in the theater, actually, Um, or if I didn't see it in the theater, I saw it, like, like, upon its own video release like, the next year, but in hindsight, you know, I had, we had, we have a friend, mutual friend Chuck, who used to read Wrapped in Plastic, which was a Twin Peaks fanzine, so I have, you know, years of, like, this magazine that I've read, all of the extra, like, novelizations and books, like, you know, the, the Cooper tapes, the Secret Diary, like, all this other stuff that I've read, so watching it, it's Lynch filling in, like, pieces not of the story, but of the world. Like, this is why the world exists, and this is how this world works. So, as a narrative film, like, as a standalone film, it really doesn't make any sense, and is honestly probably a pretty bad movie, without knowing, like, what... Independent of Twin Peaks, the first two seasons of Twin Peaks, that movie, I don't think, can work as a standalone. No. I don't know, because I haven't seen it as a standalone. Yeah, I mean... But I... But I I have a feeling that it would not. It would be uh, just a mess of a movie. But then again, maybe not. Because really, like... Well, let me say this, and here's why I'll say that. It's where... Where I'm saying I get where the fans could have been coming from at that point. And I mean, like, the actual fans that kind of aren't just maybe casual fans of Twin Peaks, but fans that were even fans of Lynch's. Like, you know, fans of that style and stuff is Lynch is playing a joke in the first 30 minutes of that movie. Like, he's... 
I can't remember the town's name already, even though I just watched it recently, but it's like that town that he like sends Chet, uh, Chester Desmond. Yeah, Chester Desmond. And, um, I can't remember the uh, other one's name. It's not his stand. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland's Yeah, Kiefer Sutherland. Um, he, um, when they go and investigate the, um, Oh, damn, I'm slow. her name's... Renna Pulaski? No, nah, Renna Pulaski's the girl with Laura Palmer and the... The um, one before Renna Pulaski? Yeah, I can't remember yeah, like her name. Bernie. So, when they go investigate that murder, it's like, everything is a mockery of Twin Peaks. It's like, that's what people want, is they want Twin Peaks, right? That's what they sure. want, is they love Twin Peaks. And you go there, and the deputy... Is a doofus, but he's a dickhead. He's a smug asshole. Right. And you get the sheriff, and he's a smug asshole. He's not, like, the kind, humble, like, you know, town sheriff. He's, you know... He's also not virtuous at all. He's a complete no. criminal. Right. Yeah. Cable Ben Steele. Yeah, yeah. Cable like, Ben Steele. Um, which is one of, like, my favorite, like, little... The secretary's, uh, like, portrayed as, like, maybe... She's having well. She's also having an affair with the deputy, but she's a terrible person. Terrible person. She's laughing at the, at the fact that they're like making fun of these FBI. The agents coffee's bad. Like, coffee's bad. Yeah. Right. You know they um, they go to um, you know the diner. They go to the diner. And yeah, the diner's just a mess. Yeah, the diner's a mess, and it's like you awful, know, awful, like beaten down people in it. Right. You know, like they're not charming, like the people that are there. Um, the woman who's working behind the counter certainly isn't charming. No. Um, they're all smoking and... Yeah, like, what the one guy tells is, like, you know, uh, Desmond, it's like, you know, you don't want no piece of that. <laughs> like, you know, like, about, like, behind the counter. I can't remember what her name is, Rose, or something like that. But it's like, um, <clears throat> yeah, nobody wants a piece of that. Um, and it's like, you know, there's a trailer park, you know, which ends yeah. up coming back again. But it's like, you know, there's a trailer park, and it's just this... There's no charm. Everything is the opposite of what you want out of it. Yeah. And it is a joke for 30 minutes. It's a joke. And then, like, you finally get Cooper, you know, in the fantastic sequence in that movie with David Bowie. Yeah. You know, like, you really know, it's sequence. like all that stuff in Philadelphia. And then Cooper goes out to, which ends up being the whole damn new season, is that scene with Philip Jeffries, sure. the David Bowie character, is, like, all built around that scene almost. Um, Cooper goes out to this town and is in it for maybe not even five minutes before, yeah. like, you know, his part's done. And then it moves into the stuff with Laura Palmer. Yeah. And it's like, the thir- the first 30, 30 minutes is a joke. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the exact opposite of what you want. I'm going to, and it's funny. I think it's hilarious. I think it's a funny joke. It is. Um, but but I can see where fans would be frustrated when they've been waiting for a year and a half for what they think are going to be answers, and there's no answers. But even in that, there's... I mean, it, it is. It, if not a... I don't know if joke is the right word. It's definitely... Hmm. It's definitely, like, a nod to the fan base by doing the opposite of what they expect. But there's a lot of menace in the first half hour of that movie. And there's a lot of really uncomfortable... Sure, sure. Like, almost... Firewalk with me from start to finish is incredibly uncomfortable to watch. And it has a lot of very dark ideas in it. 
Um, both in like just the idea that how poorly people treat other people, which I think maybe, and I would put Lynch like next to like like John Cassavetes in this respect in terms of American directors that he just will show you how awful a person can be to another person. Yes. And he does it in a way, I mean, Lynch is like a lot more dreamy and like abstract than the way he does it, but he certainly doesn't shy away from the idea that, you know, abuse exists, incest exists, yeah. you know, people are just terrible to one another. Yeah. And it shows it almost as like, here it is on, you know, the real world level of what's occurring. And here it is on this metaphysical level of these like, fantastical creatures that are living in this room above a convenience store. Yeah. You know what I mean? And like the Gar, Gar, Garban, Garban Boza or whatever. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, again, like, oh, and no, I, he, he, where he didn't go in the TV series cause he couldn't cause it's on network television. I think is, this is what he couldn't get away with. Oh yeah. hundred percent. You know? And it's like, so once you get past the first half hour of that movie, you know, and that's, a lot of it, that's the mythology, that's that's the stuff that you build the st- rest of the story off of, and sure. that, you know, there's a lot of that stuff there, and and, and I think the joke, you know, and I, I don't think it's a harsh joke, I don't think it's a mean joke, like, I mean, I think it's a little, like, you know, maybe you said a tip of the hat, yeah, like, it's a you wink know, and a nod. right, um, it, the, then the movie really starts. Yeah, when they're in Twin Peaks. And that movie is gutting. yeah. It's from awful. that point on, it is, it is, it's, it's probably the, the third or fourth time I've watched this movie, but I haven't watched it in a long time now, Firewalk with me, it's been at least a decade. Yeah. Like, I reacted very badly to it this time, not in a way of not liking it, but just, I, it really hit me. Yeah, it's very like, tough to watch. Watching it this time. Some of the least erotic sexuality I've ever seen in film. Like, where everything yeah. is just very, very right, sad yeah, and yeah. very, like, man, like, why can't these people just get out of, yeah. like, this? Like, why are they stuck in this terrible world where, like, I don't know, like, their their families treat them poorly and they're objects to everyone. Yeah. And, like, maybe the only escape for Laura Palmer is, like, to die. Oh, and I think that's ultimately the point is, yeah. in some ways, is that, like, you know, death is... A welcome thing for her at this point. Um, Thinking about it now, like, I don't know if I should have put this on the list necessarily because, and I I, I love this movie. Yeah. But again, like, thinking about it, like, as a movie, as a standalone movie, like, if that's the whole, like, point is to talk about, like, films, like, it really, you, we we can't talk about this movie without talking about Twin Peaks. I mean, I think we can talk about the scenes and stuff, man. Yeah, and there's some really effective scenes. It's like, the, the scene... When she comes in and Bob has taken over Leland at the dinner table. Yeah. And she comes in and he makes her sit. He, she, he wants her to wash her hands. Wash her hands, yeah. And then he like, you know, she sits down and he starts kind of berating her. Uh-huh. And he goes over and he grabs her cheek. Is one of the more menacing damn scenes. And Ray Wise is amazing. Yeah, he's really good. And it's like, when he grabs her cheek, and like, you know, then Grace Zabrinsky comes in, and Sarah, and like, you know, she's like, what's going on? Like, Leland stops, she doesn't like that. And there's that damn line where he's like, you know, uh, she doesn't know what she likes. Yeah. It's like, Jesus Christ. So, like, but in that respect, like, and also, and I, I don't know, like, how much Lynch, like, meant for this, but 
it really does work as like a metaphor for like you know child child abuse and like sexual abuse in the sense that like Grace Zabriskie knows what's happening, but she's... On some level, she does, yes. Even I, if it's not conscious. I, I think it's on a conscious level. Because yeah. throughout that entire, like, through the series, but she, like, definitely in this movie, like, medicating herself. Yeah, she, right. She medicates herself, but he also medicates her on the nights that he's... Oh, sure. You know, going to molest her. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's like... Um, and that's where it's like, oh, God... Lynch doesn't pull any punches. Uh, the one of the worst things I noticed watching it this time is when Bob Leland creeps into the window at night and they have sex. I would call is, it raped her, but okay. She grabs him and pulls him closer like a lover. And it is horrifying yeah. when I saw that. Because, the, I mean, there's some element of, like, almost, like, Stockholm-like type yeah. of stuff that's in, that, that he's suggesting there. I mean, she's being, she admits to uh, Harold, you know, I think it is. Uh-huh. It's like she's been being raped since she was, like, 12 yeah. or something like that. It's like, you know, so this is six years, like, you know, right? Like, yeah. I mean, and it's like... Um, and you see the darkness inside Laura too, like that's grown over this time because that's what Bob's trying to do is 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 infest her in some ways, you know. Um, and that was horrifying when yeah. I noticed that this time around. It's pretty. That, it's pretty terrifying. Um, like, all, all of those scenes are incredibly, yeah, incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah, but it's like in the, but there's nothing like, and I I have a lot of respect for Lynch in those scenes though because there's nothing gratuitous about it. No. Like, you know, like, they're nothing at all. Again, like, it's, you know? it's the least erotic, like, right, right, sexuality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's horrifying, but he doesn't even try to milk the horror out of it. No. Like, he at just all. shows like, it. Right. The horror comes from the idea rather than the presentation yeah. or execution. Right. Um, but it's like, you have that kind of stuff, you know, like, the train car sequence during the murder is yeah. absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Um, you know, like, the screams of Laura, I mean, Cheryl Lee's one of the best screamers I think I've ever seen in my life. Um, that shriek that she can, like, let out. But it's, like... It's definitely blood-curdling. Yeah. That that shriek that she lets out in the train car with the blood coming down her face... Yeah. Um, is, like, one of, like, the best, like, shrieks, like, I've ever heard, like, in a film, probably. Like... And you're right. A lot of the stuff we can't talk about because it's, like, it's so tied into the story of Twin Peaks and the metaphysical nature of the lodge and all that kind of stuff that it's like we have to go too far into it. Yeah, you can like, talk for but, but three or just four as hours. a story of rape and molestation of a father to a daughter, that's the other scene. Is right after the scene where he grabs her cheek, it shows Leland sitting on the bed that night and like Sarah's over there chain smoking, looking in the mirror, like doing something. Mm-hmm. And Leland starts crying and gets up and goes into Laura's room while she's studying and tells her he loves her. It's like, that's another one that got me. It's like, you know, like, it's like, oh my God. Like, my, my, it's just a pit in my stomach. Like, yeah. you know, like, and again, Ray Wise, like, you know, like nailing it up. Well, because ultimately, and. But he's not controlling. Yeah, it's, it's terrible to say this, but I mean, that's. In the very literal sense, there's a demon that's in, in control of him that yes. he doesn't like, doesn't want to do the things he's doing, and he's aware of the things he's doing, which is like even more horrific. Right. Um, 
But not, but like not a good man. Because, I mean, like, Teresa Palmer... What's her name? Um, Teresa Palmer. No, it's not Teresa Palmer. It's Teresa Banks. Teresa Banks. Yeah, yeah sorry. Yeah. Not Sarah. Yeah, Teresa Banks. Teresa Banks, it, that movie implies that he was having an affair with her as Leland. Yeah. And Bob had nothing to do with it. It's only, like, and it's Leland that sees that Sarah, or, sorry, that Laura and Ronette, when he tries to have the threesome, with Teresa Banks, and he sees on through the window and realizes that his daughter's a prostitute, and then flees. That's all Leland. So Leland is having an affair, yeah. and like, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, but that darkness of Bob, who is a demon that comes out and takes over for him, that somehow infested Leland, I think. Flicking lit matches, then. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Um, and it's like. One of the criticisms I read one time of Twin Peaks as a whole was that, um, is that Lynch took the easy way out by making, by having Bob be the, like, some demon inside of Leland that does it. Is it really the easy way out? I mean, it's just, like, that's, that that's a really, like, I don't know. That's really cheap criticism. It's, well, it, it, was a, it was a feminist critic that was arguing that it's it's ignoring the reality of the situation, which is that's it's not demons inside of people, uh, inside of fathers that molest their daughters. It's the father making that decision. But I, I go ahead, you can respond. Okay, fine. Like I, I, I agree with that point. You're right. But that doesn't mean that the father that, like you're, it's not a documentary. It's it's, right. it's a narrative film, and you had to. So I'm going to make the complete opposite argument I made with Inland Empire. Like, you have to have, like, nuance to character for character to matter. And the nuance of Leland Palmer is that, in some ways, a part of him is still a person that wants to be a good father, but he can't help himself. So even if you just look at, like, Bob as a demon in, like, like a metaphorical sense, it still could be true. You can have, like, the duality of man, right? Like, you can be an alcoholic but not want to drink. Like, you know, you can... Whatever. Like, you can always, like, look at the things you do wrong and hate yourself for it, but not be able to control, like, the compulsion you have to do the thing that you hate. Right. So, even from, like, a metaphorical standpoint, and he's ultimately telling a ghost story, basically, about, like, this other world of, like, you know, metaphysical beings that exist, like, in parallel to ours. And that's just, like... That's the way, I mean, there's very little thing, it's very little things in this world, I think, that most people would argue are worse than molesting a child. Right. That's worse than, like, the corruption of a minor, and, or the abuse of a minor, and this is Lynch's way of showing how evil these things are by making that the backdrop. Sure. Now, if the person had argued that that's, like, like, a very crass way to do it, like, okay, like, I can agree with that argument a little more. I think it's really powerful. And again, like you said, I don't think it's gratuitous at all, but I feel like, I feel like Leland Palmer has to have a measure of redeemable, like there needs to be like a, a spark of redemption in Leland Palmer for him to work as a character, because if he's just a monster, then it doesn't matter that he dies and it doesn't matter. Sure. So, I don't Well, I mean, didn't we have a similar conversation with Emma a little bit, like, now that I'm thinking about it, it's like, 
there has to be some spark. I mean, the thing yeah. that makes a monster a monster is the fact that they're not Bob. 100%. The fact that they're human. You know, like, and they're making these decisions. Yeah. And it's like, even though, okay, even if Leland isn't in control, the fact that he knows what is happening, and, like, he could stop it. Leland could, Leland could take a gun and put it to yeah, his he head. he could kill and, himself. Right. Sure. And, 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 and that's it. Yeah. And he's, whatever, too damn selfish or whatever it is to, like, you know, to, to, to do that. You know, so... It still doesn't, even if Bob exists, it still doesn't preclude you from watching that and realizing it's a father molesting his daughter. Yeah. And the argument that you're making of how it really plays is even Leland, just say Bob didn't exist. I still think the scene plays out exactly the same. Yeah. I think Leland really... sits there and sits there. She doesn't know what she wants. Yeah. And then later feels bad about it because his urges were taking over. I agree with all that. And he cries about it and he goes and tells her that he loves her and really does mean it to some degree. Yeah. And then still sneaks in her room late at night. I mean, like, here's, this is, this to me, this is the best way to like make an analogy for this. Is like, you watch Friday the 13th and Jason is a monster. Mm-hmm. But he's just a monster. He's a plot device, right? Like, right. The, the killer in a horror movie is, is, is deus ex machina like all the time. Leland Palmer is so much scarier as a villain because he's not like the the Deus Ex Machina is inside of him as a character, and he's still a character on top of that. He's still like a fully realized person. Like you see him interact with other people in the world, and he's not just Bob's not just this thing that like causes people to kill other people or harm other people. You know, he becomes like, an integral part of that person's life, and I don't know, like, it makes it so much scarier, and I think that Fire Walk With Me, I don't know, like, it, one of the things that I love the most about Fire Walk With Me, and to get off of, like, this really long Leland Palmer part of the conversation, is that Lynch just shows, and we, we've talked about this, like, you know, privately, like, offline or whatever, but Lynch is the master of showing the terror of, like, small places. Like, yeah. the terror of, like, what, like, when you look at the, the the white picket fence, like, the nice home in the suburbs, and you see, like, this is the American dream, like, Lynch is like, okay, well, the curtains are dark, what's behind the curtains, right? Like, mm-hmm. here's a, a train car that you might just pass on the road. What happened inside that train car that's horrifying? Right. Here's a little trailer park that, like, is just off on the corner right. of some road. What exists in that trailer park that's, like, be like that's so horrible to consider that, like, your brain can't even comprehend. And in a lot of ways, like, I've never even, like, I just came upon this, like, I just thought about this now. In a lot of ways, it's almost like what Lovecraft is trying to, like, discuss when you talk about, like, like the, the great old ones, like the Thulu mythos. In the fact that, like, it's so terrible that your brain can't comprehend it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just larger than what your human mind can comprehend, and it, like, tests your sanity to even, like, consider it. And that's what Lynch's, like, world of Twin Peaks is, is that what are these things beyond... It's the chaos of the unknown unknown. Yeah, like, what, what's outside, like, the corner of your eye that, like, is lurking there that's just too terrible to consider? And Lynch says that, okay... Well, this shit's everywhere. Like, this is the entire world is this stuff. 
and you just don't see it because you're not looking. And I think that he's really effective, especially in this movie and, you know, Blue Velvet, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. He's incredibly effective at, like, doing that. Yeah, I mean, this story, I mean, I... I, I... I think Leland Palmer has to be the primary conversation of yeah, most yeah, of this is sure. because it's him and Laura. I mean, and that's really what it comes down to is as much as maybe we don't want to think about that. Like, that's what this movie really ultimately is about. But you're right. I mean, it's like, it's a, he goes a little bit beyond Blue Velvet here. Well, maybe more than a little bit. But it's like, rather than kind of showing you just like what's, because he doesn't show you what's behind the curtain. Like the dark curtains in the house. This movie is showing you what is behind the dark curtains in the house, to use your analogy. Yeah. Like, and you don't want to know what's going on no. there whatsoever. Like, Blue Velvet's, like, much <clears throat> more in terms of the town and, like, you know, sure. like, you know what's under the surface of, a, of, a, of an idyllic town. This is what's going on in the idyllic household with the prom queen. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, um, basically like a two and a half hour version of Janie Got a Gun, which is like the right. most uncomfortable song in the world to me. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, no, this is, um, no, I agree. I thought about it before we talked about it. I told you, like, I didn't know how to do this without talking about Twin yeah. Peaks and like, you know, but um, I agree with you that it's in his top five. I just don't know if a casual... Like non Twin Peaks fan would um no. or yeah, maybe not. Fan, I'd actually like, be interested in talking to somebody that that's the only thing of Twin Peaks they've ever seen. Right? Yeah, I I, I would too. Um, I don't know if that person exists. But. <laughs> right. I'm sure. I'm sure yeah. they do somewhere. Okay, so let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay, so for number two, what we have is Elephant Man, which is Lynch's second <clears throat> movie, done in 1980. Um, based off the success of, um, the underground success, I guess, of Eraserhead that ends up getting in this movie. Um, the story that I heard in an interview is that he said that he, this is very Lynchian, that he talked to, I guess, what was presumably his agent, but it wasn't quite an agent, and said that he, he wanted to direct somebody else's movie because he had a movie he wanted to direct and couldn't get funding for that he wrote. Ron, Ronnie Rocket, maybe, <clears throat> and um, I got he never made it. And he uh, asked this guy, like you know, if he knows of any movies, and he's like, "Hey, I got three of them." And they go and they meet for lunch the next day, and <clears throat> he this guy tells him the title. Well, the first one's called Elephant Man, and Lynch says, like you know, something starts, you know, he wiggles his fingers, and something starts working up here, and like you know, I start getting images, and I say, "That's it. That's the one." And he never even heard about the other two movies, and he just chose that one. So, um, then I guess, like, they take the original script, and this guy and him and somebody else, like, rewrite it. Um, that's kind of more as Lynch wants to see it. Yeah. And, um, and then they go into filming. Um, critically, really well-received, 91% by critics, 93% by audiences. Um, so, received overall, so well-received. So, what... What do you? What is your like? Uh, why is it so hot? So you talk about the, like your need to have like an emotional connection with characters, and I think that, in terms of like actual like investment in characters, Elephant Man is probably Lynch's most like human movie. Yeah. Straight story, I'm sure, is probably like a little more human because Elephant Man still has like a lot of 
I don't know, like surreal elements to it, but it, it really is like, it's very heartbreaking, but also very like life affirming. Um, it's got some amazing performances, you know, uh, Hopkins is great in it. Um, John Hurt's great in it for as little as like you can actually see, but like just, it's, it's beautiful. Like the way he films it, the black and white cinematography is, is amazing. Um, it really makes you feel like you're seeing like turn of the century London in it. Um, it's got a lot of echoes of like Todd Browning's like freaks Mm. in the way that it's filmed. And I mean, like both just in, in the, the style that he uses to direct it and like very specifically in the fact that, you know, John Merrick, the real life elephant man who's, you know, portrayed in the movie, um, like is in like a freak show at some point, like he gets sold by the, well, he's like rescued from like his, basically like his, his slave master who's enslaved him because of his elephantitis or whatever. And then like the guy steals him back and basically like brings him back into slavery. And that leads to the end of his life. Um, but just, like, really well acted, really well, like, like paced. Um, definitely, like, an emotional roller coaster in the sense that you feel, like, so, um, I don't know, like, so connected to Merrick and, like, his successes. And it just makes, like, his setbacks, like, that much more, I don't know, just horrifying and depressing in a lot of ways. And uh, maybe the only Lynch movie that can ever, I can say ever, like, has brought me to tears a lot of times. Like, that that movie definitely makes me cry every time I see it. Um, it's got some echoes of Eraserhead in it, especially with, like, um, like, the implied, like, he thinks that his mother was raped by an elephant, and that's, like, where he comes from. And, like, those scenes, like, where he's kind of, like, imagining the dream sequences there. Um, but again, yeah, like, very much, like, I, I, I would assume, like, there's there's homage there to Freaks, definitely, maybe, like, Gaslight in the way that it's filmed. Um, the way that he films, like, brickwork and, like, masonry and, you know, like, it, it feels like it's all naturally lit and it doesn't feel like there's, like, yeah. you know, big, like, lights off, off screen. Um, just incredibly well done. Um, really iconic. Um, I think maybe in terms of like movies that people think of probably that, you know, like I am not a animal, I'm a human being, that kind of stuff. Right, yeah. Well Seinfeld like kind of like mocked the whole like I'm not an animal thing like yeah. in one of its early seasons and so I think it's kind of Mel, kept in the consciousness. Mel Brooks too. Yeah. In a uh, young Frankenstein. Right. But just fantastic. You know, um great practical effects in the makeup of the elephant yeah. man and you know just I mean, really, like, I, I don't think there's anything that I dislike about it. Yeah. Do, you, do you know the story about, like, the Mel Brooks story? About Elephant Man? Yeah. No. Um, so, um, who's the actress in this? Remember? I can't remember. Okay. Um, so, she, they couldn't find um, funding for it. And the actress, she ends up reading the script, she loves it, talks about Brooks about it. Brooks is like, okay, I'll go ahead and produce it. And he's like, you know, he knows everybody that's on board, but he's like, who's this David Lynch guy? So, he, you know, and they try to tell him, like, you know, oh, like, you know, he's like this avant-garde, like, you know, filmmaker, you know, you, you haven't seen a Razorhead, you have to see it, like, so Brooks is a little bit suspicious, 
and um, Lynch tells the same story all the time, like ever, like the same version of the story all the time. But you know, once he heard that Brooks wanted to see Eraserhead, he said, "Well, it's been nice knowing you guys, because um, <clears throat> I'm not going to direct this movie." So they show it. I think at Warner Brothers. Um, they show a racer head for Brooks, and they want Lynch to be outside the theater for when Brooks is done seeing it, so Brooks can meet him and talk to him. And Lynch says that, you know, very much like a, describing a movie scene, he says that he's sitting out there, and, like, you know, it's double doors, and the two doors swing open, and Brooks walks through. Um, and he came up to Lynch, and he sat there, and he, like, put his arms around him and hugged him, and he says... You're a madman. I love you. <laughs> um, and um, a great little story about this. And it's like, you know, but um, so I just thought of it when you said Brooks, actually, because I forgot about that, that Brooks kind yeah. of like mimics that. Um, <clears throat> but um, Brooks is very pivotal behind this movie in terms of like getting this on film, which is not something a lot of people think. No, about. like, I mean, you know, it's like this that Brooks would be associated with something like this. Um, but yeah, so I, I agree. I mean, I, besides a straight story, I think this probably is his most cohesive narrative. Yeah, definitely the most accessible. Like, you know, yeah. Um, especially to like a casual audience, sure. I think. Um, <clears throat> which shows that Lynch is capable of doing that, which I find even more interesting that he veers away from sure. it, even though he still really loves this movie from what I understand uh, what I can gather um, are there particular scenes that stick out in your mind that like are really powerful sure um, definitely the stuff with with the nurses you know like the one nurse being fired because um, you know she can't stomach like looking at him and then just how kind everyone is to him um the scene where he's assembling, like, the matchstick model of the church that he can see mm-hmm. from the window of his... Yeah. And then how just, like, heartbreaking it is when that gets smashed, when, like, um, the guard is bringing everybody around to, like, kind of oogle at him, like, after hours. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe, like, the most famous scene in the movie where he's in the, um, the, the train station or whatever it is. Yeah. And everyone's, like, kind of, like like hounding him and it, it basically is like like a scene from from Frankenstein where you know they're sort of like it's almost like a lynch mob coming after him and he stops and like I'm not an animal I'm a human being um the stuff where he gets taken back to becoming like a, a freak again and just so so incredibly like soul crushing to see that stuff and the scene where he meets um what is it like princess princess margaret or Maybe it's Elizabeth, like, it's a young, young woman, but, um, you know, that, that scene is incredible, like, where, you know, he's going to the opera, and he's, like, got all this, you know, I don't know, it's just, there's, the, when, when Hopkins has him in the, I don't know, it's like a a surgical studio or whatever, like, the, they're at the, the College of Medicine, and he's, you know, Merrick, like, shows that he's, you know, a person, and he's got, like, thoughts, and, I don't know, it's just there's so much about it where they humanize, they completely dehumanize Hurt through the makeup and just the way right. you look at him. And then 
through his performance, he's humanized more than, like, almost any other person in that film. Like, he becomes, like, like the, the best example of what, like, humankind is capable of, I think. And it's, I don't know. Yeah, I, 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 agree. I, I really love the end scene of that movie, um, when he dies. Yeah. And you have that kind of moving through, like, the ether of space, um, you know, with, um, what was it, Adagio for strings playing in the background, like, I mean, it's, it's a beautiful ending sequence, um, that I watched this last week for the first time in a long time, and, um, that was the thing that, like, made me tear up, was that end sequence, not, not even being sad, necessarily, like, you know, for his death or anything like that, it was just... It's, it was a beautiful image, I thought, of moving on. Yeah. To, you know, yeah, I mean... It's, it's and, really... And, and it's, it was, it's hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> um, and, 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 it's, and it's earnest, I think, yeah. from, from Lynch. I mean, I think everything Lynch does to some degree is earnest. But, I mean, I, there, there's an earnestness to that hope. It, it also... It, it really, as... <clears throat> just from an aesthetic point of view, like, as a film, like, it shows how how masterful Lynch is at, you know, at, at, at filming narrative, at filming, like, a real, I, I don't want to say a real movie, but, like, a traditional movie, like, where he, <clears throat> he really does feel, in a lot of ways, like, something that you would have seen from, like, the 1950s or something, like a, like a Carol Reed movie or something, basically, just in the way that it looks. Yeah. And, you know, it, again, like, it's it's perfectly paced, you know, it never feels like it's plotting or like it's dragged down or it's slow. Um, and he really, like, he, he just hits you constantly with, like, you know, an emotional high and then a low and then a high and then a low. And it, it really, it, it elicits a lot of empathy, I think, mm-hmm. in a very natural way. Like, it's not, one of the things I hate most in movies is um, when you force an emotion out of me. Like, it's the reason why I hate Titanic as a film. Right, right. Because, like, don't, don't make me feel sad. Don't manipulate me into feel feeling like sad or feeling something. Like let it happen naturally. And right. I think that, I mean, Elephant Man. Or at least be, don't be so obvious that I know I'm being yeah, manipulated. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, Elephant Man for I don't know, probably like thirty years of my life now has been one of my favorite movies. Like I I love Elephant Man, and I think it really is like a classic of modern cinema. Maybe one of the best movies ever made in a lot of ways, but. Just so so well done in every aspect. Just just a beautiful movie. So, um, Dave Kerr, the Chicago Reader, he mm-hmm. gives it a middling review. I think I'm going to skip over um, his um, overall because overall he likes it. Um, but um, Ebert Ebert gives it two stars. Two stars in 1980. Yeah. Huh. Um, he gives it two stars. He's not a fan of David Lynch. Um, um, until later, um, in his life, it seems like I think he gives Mahalan Drive four stars. I think, and maybe Straight Story. I think maybe he gives four stars. But I, <clears throat> so, um, Ebert says I kept asking myself what the film was really trying to say about the human condition as reflected by John Merrick, and I kept drawing blanks. The film's philosophy is this shallow. One. Whoa, the elephant man sure looked hideous. And two, gosh, isn't it wonderful how he kept on in spite of everything. 
The last is in spite of a real possibility that John Merrick's death at 27 might have been suicide. The film's technical credits are adequate. Um, Hurt as is very good as Merrick, somehow projecting a humanity to past the, the disfiguring makeup, and Hopkins is correctly aloof yet venial um, as the Doctor. The direction by Lynch is competent, although he gives us an inexcusable opening sequence in which Merrick's mother is trampled or scared or possibly raped, who knows, by elephants, and an equally idiotic closing scene in which Merrick becomes the star child from 2001 or something. So, my first criticism of that criticism is that minimizing the idea that the human experience is that you can overcome any inadequacy you have is ridiculous. I mean, like, isn't that, like, the core of what like humanity is, is that we're we're better than what we are, or we have the capability of being better than what we are. I mean, that's the story of John Merrick, is here's a guy with, <clears throat> like, absolutely no advantage in his life. Like, starting from a point where, like, almost anyone would give up, and still manages to be literate and thoughtful and soulful and kind, you know what I mean? Like, no bitterness or animosity towards anyone. I mean, it's it's like, it's the perfect example of, like, the best of humanity. Sure. I mean, but he, th- he thinks it's shallow. It's... Yeah, but how is that shallow? I mean, it's... I don't know. You, you can't say that, that Hurt does a good job of portraying humanity and then say that it's a shallow movie. I mean, like, the whole core of that movie is Hurt's performance. And how he portrays, like, the humanity of this, ostensibly, like, this monster, right? Mm-hmm. So, you can Ebert, you can go fuck himself. I don't know. Um, and the fact that, like, you're going to be so dismissive of that end, end sequence and the beginning sequence. I mean, the beginning sequence isn't about, like, it's not gratuitous and it's not, I don't know, like, titillating. It's John Mer- It's it's showing Merrick's legitimate idea of how he came to be because he can't find a way that he could exist otherwise without developing this almost like fantastical fairy tale like beginning to himself like that's how he justifies his own existence so that it's not just like a cosmic joke right basically which is a very human thing to do is we all create narratives of our childhood of you know to justify our existence now to some degree we all frame ourselves in a certain way he must have had a bad week. Yeah. I mean, right, because normally he doesn't get that condescending. Yeah. A lot of times in his writing. Yeah, that's very crass. Yeah. I mean, especially that last sentence. Equally or something. Idiotic, close, right, or something. That's the key. Like, it's... it's um, now, I can't stand 2001, so I'm on board with him there, but... <laughs> but, no, it's, it's very it's very condescending. Yeah, like, I know, mean, this... Review. It's... I don't know. It, it's a story of a man, of one man... And it's told in a way where, you know, the other characters aren't as important as that, as Merrick. Like, Merrick is central to the, the Merrick is the story. That's, he's right. the elephant man. Ugh. No, I, um, it's a very good movie. Uh, I don't have a lot more to say other than what you said. Like, it's, it's not something that I think has a lot of 
deep analysis other than the things you talked about already, yeah. which is it's a story about overcoming odds sure. and you know. Um, I mean, it's almost man's reach see his grasp, you know, like that type of stuff. And, it's almost a fictionalized bio. I mean, it is well, a fictionalized right. Yeah, bio. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, a, it's based off the journals of that doctor. Yeah, you know, um, and the very real. I mean, it it, inspi- it inspired the biggest pop star of the nineteen eighties to buy the bones of this man, right? Because right. My, I mean, Michael Jackson, for people that don't know, like purchased like the skeleton of John Merrick. Because he was so moved by the story of the Elephant Man. And, like, that's... I mean, that, I think, is, like, a much better endorsement of it than anything that, like, a critic could say or anything, like, we could say. Is that, like, it just moves you. It makes you feel, like, such, like, deep empathy and, like, compassion for this this person, you know, who actually existed. And for all of, like, you know, the content matter that Lynch gets into after this movie... Um... I think it shows who he is really at the core. Sure. He's, he's that, it's because he, he, he can... Because Lynch brings that empathy out of the character, out of her. Yeah. And he brings it out of you. You know? And it's like um, like that, that connection that you feel. And I think you can only do that if you feel that connection yourself. And I think it really shows who Lynch is like deep down in terms of his compassion for this character, you know, and his respect for this character. Um... <clears throat> Or this man, I guess. You know, this real-life figure. I mean, um, and I think this is a lot about him uh, at his core and, like, what kind of person he is. The Boy Scout, if you will. That yeah, I, I think that people that ultimately focus, like, filmmakers that ultimately focus on, like, the darker aspects of humanity do so because, you know, you need, like, that, whatever, like, that stark reflection to show, like, the greatness that the world is capable of. Right. Like, you can't, you can't appreciate how great something can be without seeing... Like, how awful, you know, it's possible to be. Sure. And that's every one of Lynch's movies is like... And even though there's not a whole lot of redemption in any of Lynch's movies... No. Like, you know, he definitely... He definitely, like, believes in heroes. He just believes that, like, villains are as equally as, you know, powerful. And, and the villains in this movie, the... You know, the drunken guard that is taking the people on tours, the... Is it Fagin or something like that is the name of the, the, like, the freak show owner? Yeah, they're terrible. Like, they're deplorable. And they're really, they're they're characters out of, like, Oliver Twist, basically. Right. And they're caricatures in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But even, even the, like, the sodden, you know, like, slave master still to himself feels like he's the only person that can care for John Merrick and make John Merrick exactly what he needs to be, which is a sideshow attraction. And his logic is flawed and he's a terrible human being, but he like you believe that he believes that he's doing the best thing, even though it's all self serving. Right. Like he honestly believes that he loves John Merrick as like a as a person. Even though ultimately like he leads to John Merrick dying. And so he's assuming that because Merrick like has the internal injuries and lays down at the end and, like, lets himself die, that that's him committing suicide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's got, like, bronchitis, right, at the end mm-hmm. of that movie, and, like, he's really, like, ill, and they don't think he'll be able to recover. I mean, it's not like it's, like, there's not modern medicine. They can't make cure him. I took it as a knowledge that he was going to. I mean, like, Yeah, just like right, he's right. giving himself, like, yeah, yeah. his final piece, basically. Sure, right, yeah. Like, allowing himself to, like, not have, not carry, like, that metaphorical and, like, literal weight that right. he's carrying on sure. his shoulders, yeah. he's, like, allowing it to, like, yeah. 
lay down and finally like find peace or whatever. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, Man, no, I, I wish I could I ask mean, Ebert like. <laughs> Yeah. Does does he ever? Because I know that a lot of times, like Ebert will go back and re-review movies. Like I don't think he, like, I didn't see that. Never. No, no, I didn't see a Benny Lynch's movies. Like going back and redoing them. He, he really, he really does seem to have something against Lynch. Um, early in his career, like yeah. he, he does not give any of his movies. Like I think Dune was like. I can't remember. I think Dune was uh, one star. Yeah. Um, this was two stars. Um. I mean, dude, makes sense because I don't like. Yeah, I mean, everybody back then. Like, one of the one of the because biggest, it was a commercial flop, everybody made it a critical flop. I think because one of the most difficult things about, and I know that like the whole like point of this podcast is just my personal opinions on yeah. things, but one of the most difficult things when you ask me to do Lynch is that there's so much personal baggage to me that goes along with my appreciation of Lynch that it's almost impossible for me to like, have a critical mind towards Lynch as a filmmaker or Lynch's movies because my, my visceral reactions and my life experiences are so, like, wrapped in everything that he does. Sure. Maybe that's Ebert's problem. Maybe Ebert's got, like, just some crazy... It could be. Um, now that you mentioned that, though, before we get into the number one movie, um, I did want to kind of ask about um, some different movies, just some very quick reactions. Like, um... You already mentioned Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Um, what do you think of Straight Story? Straight Story is a really good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, Straight Story is like an anomaly to me in Lynch's catalog, and I don't know that I can like I I've only seen Straight Story once. I enjoyed Straight Story. I thought it was a really good movie. Um, I think it's a very sweet and you know, wholesome movie, but I don't know that I personally even, like, view it as a Lynch movie. Yeah. Like, again, like, it's just an anomaly. I tell you a few weeks ago when I saw that, like, uh, I was watching an interview with him, he said, this is his most experimental film. This is a straight story. <laughs> it's funny that he, I mean, it, I, I can see yeah. how he feels that way. And it was completely sincere. Like, he, like, like every, the audience laughed and Lynch didn't laugh. Like, it kind of afterwards, he's like, oh, yeah, I guess that's kind of funny. Um, but, like, when he said it, he did. Well, yeah, because it's the one time that he has to restrain himself. Right. To only yeah. tell a story. Like, he's not doing anything but telling <laughs> right. a story. Right. But, like, yeah, he was, like, completely serious. Like, you know, but in the same way we understand talk- the irony of it In all. the same way we talked about Elephant Man, I mean, it shows that Lynch could have been just, like, a titan as a director if sure. he just would have done, like, sure. traditional narrative. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, he's a pretty brilliant director. Absolutely. I, I, and I, I don't know. That's why I find that Lucas story so fascinating is, like, it's, like, being exposed to what would have come with that somehow yeah. made him sick. Like, you know, it's like, and not in the sense of like, he was, he's like, he doesn't like those people or anything like that. It's just, that's sure. not who he is. Like, I mean, Lynch is like a true artist in the sense yeah. that he's compelled to make the things that he makes. And then like, he paints, sure. we didn't talk about that. Well, that's before. what he says is like, he did, he always wanted to be a painter. Yeah. Very, very accomplished painter. Yeah. And, and he said that he, he said when he started making movies, is like he just thought of it as 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 moving paintings. Yeah, well, <laughs> like you can see that in a race. Sure, sure. Um, right. So it's like you know what, what uh, you said. You earlier you said you have uh, kind of had a different take on a racer head and like, I, your feeling on it. Yeah, like, I, I I vacillate on race on a racer head a lot. Like when I first saw a racer head, I loved it. Yeah. Um, and part of that was just because I was like I don't know, fourteen or fifteen maybe right. and. 
you know, you, when you see, like, like I was really into, like, Louis Buñuel and, um, I don't know, like, a lot of, like, experimental things around that age. Um, and so it was just, like, it was mind-blowing to me. And then as I got older, I kind of feel Eraserhead is just, it's just experimentation for experimentation's sake in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, and I can see that as, like, like a young filmmaker, like, he's, yeah. you know, just all these ideas and he's just, like, getting them out, basically. Yeah. Um, he claims, because he won't talk about that either, but um, he claims this is his most personal film that he ever made. It might be. I mean, you can see a lot Something of it. about fatherhood. Yeah, I mean, yeah. obviously it's about fatherhood, and, you know, he's a young father at that point living yeah. in Philadelphia. Is like, um, but it might be so personal that it's like, maybe it just does seem like I that, mean, maybe but. it is just the fear of, like, not being able to raise your child well. Like, yeah, right. There being, sure. like, yeah. I mean, there's this, like, monstrous baby. Yeah. But maybe that is like, like a like a metaphor for I don't know like not succeeding as a parent because there's yeah. something that something in your child that you can't correct and you're trying right. to take care of it as best you can. Yeah. But um, yeah. well, one of the reasons I loved Eraserhead for when I was a kid too was because um, one of my favorite bands of all time is the Pixies and they actually cover uh, the Lady in the Radiator song. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a B side on by like Bailey's or. Here Comes Your Man or something. Maybe I can't remember. But, um, like, just, like, The Lady in the Radiator, like, all that stuff. Like, it's just, I don't know. But it's it's a very uncomfortable film to watch. Oh, like absolutely, yeah. I, see, I didn't see uh, Racer until later in life. I mean, I was probably, like, 21, maybe? Yeah. 22. I, I really liked it a lot. Um, even, yeah, I agree. It's uncomfortable. Um, the other I, thing. So I, I never had, like, a... A long period to deal with it. I don't think like you're talking about. The other thing with Eraserhead too is that when again when I was a kid, like you couldn't just go into like Movie King and rent Eraserhead. Like Eraserhead right. was. Right. I think the first time I saw it was on this really like grainy like bootleg VHS copy that I got from like like Video Search Miami or something like that. Um, and or I don't know, like maybe somebody had a copy, but I it wasn't definitely like like an official release. Um, and as I got older, like the pretension of I don't know like feeling special that I was the only one that had seen it like kind of wore off and I just sort of not that I even like hate Eraserhead and I would actually like to watch Eraserhead again I think at some point but I don't know I just I feel like I need more narrative than Eraserhead gives sure and like I, I love stuff like like I love Jodorowsky like movies and you and I have argued about them yeah um, I love like the visual visually stunning style of that and I think Eraserhead is visually arresting. Like, I think it's an incredibly... The sound in that movie is amazing. Like, the way... And that was, again... You know, he's doing all of his own sound there. Like, he's creating all those effects and stuff. But, I don't know. It's just a little too... Maybe a little too avant-garde. And as I get older, I think I'm not as much into the avant-garde. Um... Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart. Wild at Heart, yeah. Um, it's fine. Like, I, I enjoy Wild at Heart, and my original list, um, Inland Empire, was not number four. Wild at Heart was number four. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I always felt like I had to keep Dune at number five, because it can't be any higher than that. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I really enjoy Wild at Heart. I think Wild at Heart is... It's almost a little too bombastic. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a little more outlandish and, like, quippy than mm-hmm. I find... Like, it, it's not tempered enough. 
I don't know. I, I can't explain, like... It's not tempered enough for me to be taken completely serious. Yeah, you know, it, it isn't. And I, maybe part of it is, like... And maybe, I think that's some of the enjoyment in it, though, as well. Sure, sure. It's it's a fun movie. Right, yeah. But I never liked Laura Dern. Like, yeah. I, I... I like Laura Dern in certain things, and sure. I actually... You know, just from, like, a like a personal standpoint, find her more appealing, like, as I get older. Like, I, I find more, like, nuance in her performances, and I enjoy her more as an actress. Yeah. But, like, as a kid, because, again, like, I saw Wild at Heart when I was, like, maybe 15 or 16 years old. Um, I thought Laura Dern was, like, atrocious, and I have hated Nicolas Cage for most of my existence. And it's just really... <laughs> Really tough for me to like go back and watch that movie again. Right. Plus, Wild at Heart's a weird. Wild at Heart and Inland Empire are both incredibly difficult to find to watch. Like yeah. you can't stream them anywhere. Um, you can't like rent them off Amazon. Like I had to see Inland Empire again. I had to buy it off eBay. Mm-hmm. Like the DVD set. I didn't pay like forty five dollars for the right. stupid DVD. Um, and I wasn't gonna go spend that money on Wild at Heart because I remember Wild at Heart well enough. Um. But, you know, it's a good movie. It's just not... It's just not one of my five favorite of his. Okay. So, anybody that, like, knows anything about the A. Lynch movies can tell what number one is by this point, um, because we went, we've mentioned every single movie of his, yeah. um, because there's only ten. But, um, mm. so number one is Blue Velvet, um, which is probably the one I think that most people know him for of a movie, probably. Um, it's released in 1986. Um, this is the most Kyle MacLachlan will ever appear on any list, I'm assuming. Um... <laughs> Um, is, is this is this third movie now? Yeah, unless we do um, a list that has like showgirls in it somewhere, maybe or I don't know. Yeah, but it's like what else is on that list? Don't you know, right? I don't want. I don't, don't, don't want to do that list. So Jade. Uh, <laughs> Jade. Um, oh, David Crusoe. Ninety-four um, percent among critics, eighty-eight among audience. Um, uh, you know. Amazing performances and yeah. by all the actors in this, but um, go ahead and tell me why. Why is it the number one for you of Lynch? So I, I said this a little bit earlier, but the thing I love the most about David Lynch is that he finds he finds horror in the places where you wouldn't normally think as being like horrific. And number one, I I think it it weaves this this perfect like duality of you know, it, it uses this town as this like this backdrop for this duality. And it almost feels like, you know, the the suburbs where, you know, Laura Dern lives with her family and where Comic Lachlan's coming to like quarter. There's no way that that's connected to like the industrial wasteland that, you know, Frank Booth people in inhabit, right? Like it's almost like there's there's no way those two things are connected at all. And I I think number one, I don't necessarily consider Comic Lachlan to be a good actor. Like I think that Lynch brings the best out in him. Mm-hmm. Um but definitely like his 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 greatest role, where he's not playing a caricature, which I kinda think he's doing as Cooper, he is like a character. And here's a guy that has the ability to just what is what's Laura Dern's dad? He's like a dentist or something. So, no, her dad. Or hold on, whose dad is the cop? Well, maybe that is Laura Dern's dad. Laura Dern's dad. But anyway, so he has the ability to date like the all American girl right. and live like the all American life, mm-hmm. and finds an ear in a field. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just 
you know, he's got, um, you know, this, like, completely crazy, overtly sexual relationship with, um, is it Monica Bellucci? Isabella Russell. Is, okay, sorry. They're the same person to me. Um, that's, like, contaminated by, you know, this insane group of, like, deviants, basically. And on the other hand, like, this completely buttoned-down, like, existence. Yeah. And the fact that Lynch is able to, like, show those two things basically is, like, mirrors of each other, you know? Sure. And... Yeah. I mean, which starts with the opening image of that movie, which is, I think, one of the best things Lynch has ever filmed from a symbolic or you know, thematic point of view is that opening where... Jeffrey's father dies water, uh, doing the lawn. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's like the white picket fences, the bright blue sky, the houses, the fire truck going by with the guys waving, and then he has a heart attack and dies on the lawn. And then you just keep going down into the ground. Yeah. And you see those damn ants, like, battling one another, and it's like here's what life really is, is, like, here's what's under the surface of it. And the noise of that, too. Right, yes, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it is just, it's just noise. Yeah. And it's like, you know, you hear the ants, but there's also other stuff yeah. going on in the background, like the ambient noises, um, unsettling. Um, it's also, like, you, you think about... I mean, about, that sums up Lynch to me, is yeah, that, is exactly. that scene right there. Like, uh, you, you think about it, like... I mean, the movie's named for the song, obviously, like Blue Velvet, and just an incredibly, like, soulful and simple song about, like, love and unrequited love and whatever, and the fact that he can subvert, like, what really is, like, a beautiful, like, idea into, I mean, who who is it, um, I can't remember the name of the, the actor, like, escapes me, the guy that comes out and sings the... Sandman. Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, Harry Dean Stanton. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the thing, is there's, he always takes these... Is that right? Hold on, no, 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 it's not. It's not, I, I can't it's, remember. It's not, what's his name from Quantum Leap? Um, I know, it's killing me. Ah, oh, man, this is embarrassing. Yeah, it is. Um, anyway, so, it's like, there's a movie that came out in the late 90s, people. No, that's, I don't think that's it. Um, the guy from Quantum Leap's name, the character's name. There's a movie from the late 90s, early 2000s called Pleasantville. Do you, do you remember? Stockwell. Yeah, Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. You remember Pleasantville? Yeah. And it's, like, that movie fails yeah. at what Lynch, like, succeeds at, which is the idea that, like, one of the scariest things to me, one of the things that's most effective about Blue Velvet is that the idea, that the idealized version of the 50s, like, again, like, you know, it's not what's happening in... in Beaver's household is what's happening on the other side of town. Mm -hmm. And that's what Blue Velvet is. And, you know, growing up in the late 70s, early 80s, like in my formative years, basically like when Blue Velvet came out is when I was like growing as as a human being, you know, it still was, the idea still was that that was the world, that the world was, you know, people were good, like neighborhoods were you know, there were communities, people helped each other. And, you know, we, we grew up in a time where we were being told by Phil Donahue that 
you were going to get kidnapped and molested, like, anytime you walked out of the sure. door. And Lynch, and maybe it's just, like, like just the timing of when he was making his movies, or maybe, like, he was kind of affected by the same thing, because mm-hmm. even though, like, he's a lot older than we are, like, it's still, you know, he was coming of age as an artist around the time that, like, we were growing up. Maybe that's part of it, is just the idea that nothing is safe, you know what I mean? Like, right. and sometimes you have to confront the fact that, you know, Frank, like, cuffing his nitrous and right. daddy wants to fuck, whatever, like, that that person really exists. And he's a caricature, right. but he still is, like, a potent character. And, you know, that person is on the other side of, you know, the door at any time. That guy is, sure. like, waiting in the wings where you don't think to look. And if you never, you know, maybe you never get involved in that world, but all it takes is, like, one moment to get stuck in, like, a world where this guy is there. I don't know. It's just... Right, yeah. It's like, you know... Is it it Frank Booth? It's Frank Frank Booth. Booth. Yeah. It's like... Yeah, you're right. He's a caricature, you know? Like, I mean, it's like... But, hey, Frank... When you really strip it all down, it's like Frank Booth is just malevolence. Yeah. That's all he is. Like, that's all all those people are. It's like, this is... Unfocused malevolence. Right, yeah. This is just the shit that happens to you in life. He's just chaos. Right, right. And it's like, I, I, I see this movie, like... And I think the reason it resonates, because uh, I, I, I think it does resonate with a lot of people, and it's the reason, like, there's a, there's a reason why it's the one that, like, kind of... Um, exemplifies Lynch's career like yeah, this movie that's a good way to put it like is that it's the purest in terms of like getting to the core of like it, it is a pretty straight story overall yes. like it doesn't have the surreal dream sequences of nope. like a Elephant Man or Twin Peaks or any of that kind yeah, of stuff everything like, that happens it's, in it's that a mystery movie. detective movie yeah. to some degree that turns in it but it's also this coming of age story like sure. a like a sexual coming of age, I think, of like the late teen who is yeah, what did you say? Like the you know it's like the girl next the girl door. next door is there, but the foreign like temptress is also there. Right, yeah. And I and again, like I think uh, I'm pretty sure Lynch is a Jungian, like, you know and it's again he's kind of like wrestling with like his own dark impulses, like, you know, it's like you know, yeah, the young, attractive guy who went off to college, you know, and is going to be a success no matter what he does, probably. You know, it's like he's titillated by the the ear yeah. in the yard. And he wants to find out what's going on because there's a, that darkness is in him a little bit and he wants to explore it. And he keeps exploring it and then it's like, you know, and it's even more, it's, it's more than titillating, you know. It's like he's getting off on it, you know, physically. Yeah. Like, you know, and it's like, um, but then he also has to deal with these, all these real world things that he's never been exposed to and doesn't know how to deal with in terms of mental illness and all these other things. And then it's like real malevolence comes yeah. and it's like, what the hell do you do? And it's like, I think everybody, even if they can't associate with the damn plot elements of it, cause who can, yeah. I think everybody can associate with the ideas behind it. Yeah. Like, uh, especially, I think, men, but I mean, women probably can to some degree, but it's like, I, I think men especially can associate with, like, that kind of, like, you know, shadow self of exploring the darkness within you and those kind of things, um, especially when it comes to a, a sexual nature, you know, and 
Because a lot of people get themselves involved in stupid shit in their late teens and early 20s. Sure. Like, where, you know, everybody has that story where they ended up at that one house that one time. Yep. And you were around somebody that, like, was shady, you know? Oh, I mean, yeah. like, everybody has that. And it's like, this is the nightmare version of that, you know? It's like... So, and, like, like I, I talk about this all the time, and it's almost like an obsessive point with me with Lynch is just the way that he films abandoned places or empty places and makes it feel like dark and I think the best example is in Blue Velvet like maybe in his entire you know whatever like his entire like catalog of films in when McLaughlin is in that field and it's it's sunny and it's bright and it's verdant you know but the way that he films it like it's it's the shadows and the trees and it's just like the sun is a little too bright and even though, you know, I mean, because what you're afraid of is, like, it with, like, ghosts and, like, horrors. Like, it's so dark. It's what you can't right. see. But even though you can see everything, it's almost like you can see too much. Right. And it makes it, like, really unsettling when it shouldn't be. And it, honestly, in a lot of ways, like, I think that movie changed the way that I just look naturally at the world. Right. Is that, like, I can look at things. And Lynch is responsible for that, you know, like, throughout, like, his entire, like, film filmography but it's just like it's hard to look at like an empty space now and not feel like what's behind that empty space or what's underneath it or like if I move those weeds like what's behind right. those weeds and that's you know it's just it's, it's, it's brilliant and it's honestly it's, it's something that's almost impossible to put into words yeah. because it really is just feeling in a lot of ways and like feeling uncomfortable but and it, and it does I think have to do with time period that we grew up in too yeah because I mean it's, Sam Shepard is writing like 78 to like mid 80s or whatever like he's writing like Barry Child Fool for Love and like you know all those plays that are doing the same thing Lynch is doing like what's under the beauty, yeah. you know what's under the perfectness of this like you know of the mid in the Midwest here um and it's like so I do think something's coming up like during that time period like something's rising you know and these guys are old enough to be able to make those yeah. things but it's like isn't it isn't it in a lot of ways it's like almost like an adverse reaction to the just the wanton like hedonism of the 70s and then like the shiny like commercialism of the 80s i mean when when you think back on your childhood, like, our childhoods were... Well, isn't the 80s when they start capitalizing on the 50s and 60s? The idea of it, yeah. Right. I yeah. mean, you look I mean, at all the sitcoms from the right. 80s, like, it's all about the nuclear family. And sure. Yeah. Like... But even I think the advertising, if I if I remember from being a child correctly, they start trying to capitalize a little bit on sure. like, the whole, you know... Wilford Brimley trying to sell you some Quaker Oats. Sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Like those kind of things. Like, you know, this nice, wholesome, like, you know. And they revitalize stuff like, or revitalize. They like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, there was a renaissance for things like like Little House on the Prairie. And, right. Yeah. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, like, I was watching, like, Gilligan's Island and, I don't know, like, all yeah. those shows from the 50s and 60s and 70s that were, like, really just not accurate portrayals of anything. Sure. I mean, they're sitcoms, but. Sure. But yeah, I think that Lynch is like really like like a natural reaction to the shininess of something like I don't know. 
And there's a lot of filmmakers from the 80s that are like that, too, where, all, like, they stopped... In the 70s is more about, you know, like, showing the griminess of the world, but in the 80s, like, a lot of people, like, subverted the idea that... of what, like, a film was and what a blockbuster was. You know, I mean, like... Not to get too far off track, but there's plenty of things from the 80s, like like Die Hard. That's, like, you know, it's a summer blockbuster, but it's it's more than that. And I think that Lynch is, like, really, like, on the cutting edge as far as... And, again, like, to go back to what we said in the very opening, like, segment, you know, I think that... I think that he's quietly, like, one of the most influential directors of the past, like, 30 or 40 years because he's able to be artsy... And grounded, and he's in, you know, he's experimental, but he still can tell a story. And again, like, he's just exposing the idea that the world is not as perfect as, like, people would like you to think. Yeah, and I mean, I think that theme runs throughout, like, almost everything that he does, from from Blue Velvet on, with a couple exceptions, like, Straight Story and, yeah. you know, Marlon really Hart, maybe, like, I mean, doesn't have as much of it, but it's, like, certainly... Lost Highway. Wild Heart is a dirty looking movie, though. No, it is. Like, but I mean, like it's it's again, it's like it's too. I can't, it's it's, it's I very can't cartoonish. Yeah, it's it's too cartoonish for me yeah. to take it seriously. But it's like Lost Highway, Blue, uh, Mulholland Drive, and um, um, what's Peaks, and then um, and then I think Inland Empire have this element of what's under the surface always. So like, you yeah. know, it's like he never goes back from that point on. Like Then he starts to get like more crazy with like the idea of the shadow self yeah, and yeah. are um, you who you think you are and Right. Yeah. You know, what like not only just what's behind like what's in that dark window, but like what's behind your eyes and right, like, what's right. in your heart. And what's real, you yeah. know? Like, Which yeah. I mean he starts like that's very prevalent in Blue Velvet it is, with, yeah, with McLaughlin yeah. especially. Sure, sure. Um Two things. I mean, I, I'm going to read Dave Kerr's review here, um, which is a positive review. Um, but I do find a couple of things interesting. It says that Lynch develops um, his theme uh, through his visual style, presenting images that at first look conventional, if not plain trite, but which slowly reveal a hallucinatory quality. The ideal of suburban street where McLaughlin's family lives is a shade too peaceful. After dark, for instance, not a sound is heard. The branches of the trees that line it hang a bit too low and seem a bit too threatening. The interior sets are marked by a subtly disturbing absence of detail. They announce themselves as sets, ready to collapse at the slightest touch. As Blue Velvet progresses, meanings blur, certainties evaporate, and realities dissolve into dreams. Lynch has assembled a profoundly unsettling experience, one that leaves us without a clear line of approach, unable to interpret what we've seen in any conventional terms, just as he repeats the title song until its lyrics stop making sense and become a kind of mystical incantation. So does Lynch push the cliches he's put together until they explode, opening a passageway to new sensations that don't yet have names. Um, this is written in 86 um, itself, and it's like... It's the first one I've read of Kurz where I thought, like, maybe he actually does have, like, some thought to him, um, you know, after all. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean... It's... Yeah, because that's a, that's a contemporary review where he's actually... I don't see the dreamlike elements quite as much, but I think it's in because I've seen Lynch's other stuff. Yeah. Where it's like he's seeing the dreamlike qualities in... 
I mean, there, there's, there's definitely sense. stuff with Frank and, like, the Dean Stockwell character that... Sure. Like, sure. definitely have some, like, some... Yeah. It's almost like a tenuous, like, reality. Yeah, and that to me is, like, more of Lynch's quirkiness than it is the dreamlike aspect. Yeah. But, I, but, I, but I can see what he means sure. by that. He was really moved by that. I mean, that's some purple prose right It there. is, yeah, right. Yeah. Um, usually it's uh, overly pretentious. Um, the other criticism, which is Ebert's, who gave this one star... Um, um, I want to go ahead and play for you real quick. Hopper is the bad guy there. Blue Velvet is a movie that really challenges you to think about your reactions to it. And my reaction is, I think this movie is cruelly unfair to its actors. It was directed by David Lynch, the same man who made Eraserhead and Dune. And he's a talented director. You can see that here and scenes that have a lot of power. But he asked Isabella Rossellini in this movie to be undressed and humiliated on the screen as few actresses ever have been, certainly in non-porno roles. And then he tries to take the edge off her shocking scenes by turning the whole thing into some kind of a joke. Well, either this material is funny, in which case you don't take advantage of your stars, or it isn't funny, in which case it shouldn't have so much campy and adolescent dialogue along with the really powerful sexual scenes. Sure, the movie's well made, but the more I thought about it, the less I liked it. Well, I liked it, and I thought about it a lot, and I think you may be on the wrong tack in trying to feel sorry for Isabella Rossellini, because after all, she consented to do what she did on the screen, number one. Number two, I'm sure she's walking around wherever she lives, New York City or whatever, and survived the whole experience, just like Janet Lee survived the shower scene in Psycho. So I don't think that that's pertinent. I think what's exciting about the film, and it is challenging, is it starts out with flowers and sunlight, and it's a happy little town, and then we dig deeper, and we find out it's a nasty town, or at least a couple of people are nasty. And I sat there, and this did for me, and I used the Psycho example again. This did for me what Psycho did as a lot younger, which is eyes open, and oh my God, we're really getting in over our heads. And that's an experience which is challenging, shocking, but mesmerizing, and I like the picture. Well, first of all, I don't think I'm on the wrong tack with Isabella Rossellini. In the first place, the movie was shot in two halves, so she had no idea making her part of the movie that all of the stuff outdoors and in the daylight was going to be smarmy and campy and funny with all kinds of in-jokes. And secondly, it seems to me that we can't divorce our reactions. It's not how Isabella Rossellini reacts to the fact that she's standing there nude and humiliated on the lawn of the police captain's house with lots of people watching. It's how I react. And that's painful to me to see a woman treated like that. And I want to know that if I'm feeling that pain, it's for a reason that the movie has other than simply to cause pain to her. Well, I think that the reason is that the film is a thriller and a shocker. I mean, there are people that get hurt badly in real life. And I think that this is a legitimate one. This is not a simple mad slash. Why is it a comedy? Because he wants to set you up. He's a director. And he wants to play you like all the directors, the great directors want to do. He wants to play you like a piano, which is have you smile and then swing you right into the... Some depression. Yeah, well, this I think, time, I think if somebody he wants to play me like a piano, he better get some music that's worth listening to. I think this is a good song. <laughs> um, I mean, Siskel's right. You know, it's interesting that, like, Ebert has that reaction. And I think, again, this is something that we've talked about, like, you know, like, in private. But I, I think that when Ebert is made to feel uncomfortable, that it's really difficult for him to come back and not have personal animosity towards the thing that he's watching. Like, I don't know that he can... I I don't know that I ever have thought of Blue Velvet as a comedy. Like, that's kind of a kind of an odd take on that movie. Really like, both of them... Like, I, I find the comedy thing really odd. Yeah, I mean, in, in every Lynch movie, there's certainly things that, like, you'll, like, chuckle at uncomfortably. You know, and 
he definitely like gives his characters his actors dialogue that are I mean it, it's stilted and it's weird but it's on purpose like it's meant to like unnerve you and like basically like offset your expectations of what narrative is so that when he hits you with something you're that much it's it's that much easier to push you over you know like you're not like firmly grounded you're like kind of already sort of like off just because like of how weird everything is and then like he can just shove you and that's why it's that much more effective. I, like, I, I think that's right. I also think that there's a little bit of like him trying to show the banality of life. Oh yeah. You know, like through that dialogue, that forced, you know, kind of campy dialogue. Um, I think he's doing that and I think he's doing what you're saying. I, I, I also think that like in terms of like the Rossellini character, it's like the entire movie you ask yourself is this a tragic character or is this a character that's getting exactly what she wants that like wants to be in that position? Like, is she, is she really like, like captive or whatever and like in need of saving by McLaughlin or I mean, is she just like as culpable as, as Frank in some ways? And I don't know. I, you know, right. Is she fully a victim is the question. It's really difficult. And it's actually like... And, and is Jeffrey being this white knight that believes he can save her, is Ebert falling into that oh, same yeah. trap? I mean... And, <clears throat> so what's most interesting to me is that, like, we're, we're talking about movies that are decades old mm-hmm. in 2018. And I don't know, like, if I was my age right now, which I'm sure that Ebert and Siskel and that are probably about the age that, that yeah, we are, like, sure. late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. Maybe I would have felt different back then. Right. Like, maybe my expectations would have been different. But, I mean, I saw Blue Velvet when I was relatively young. Yeah. Like, probably, again, like, I saw most of Lynch's first movies no, by the time I was, like... When I first saw Yeah, like, I, maybe, like, 15 or 16, I think. Yeah. Like, that's when I was watching, like, the most movies yeah. probably in my life. But... Maybe I was a little older. Maybe 14 or 15. But it was, I think it was my first Lynch movie. I don't know. It's like, I, I know that my reaction to it is, as, a, as a child is different than my reaction to it now. And, you know, if I watch Blue Velvet in 10 years, I'll probably have a different reaction to it. But, I mean, that's sure. the power of, like, the things that Lynch does is yeah. that depending on where you are in your life. And that's, like, true of all, like, great art. Depending on where you are in your life, like, you take different things from it. Mm-hmm. So maybe it does just speak to, like, Ebert's yeah. mindset in that time period. Yeah. No, I, I found it a really odd, but still interesting reaction that he had to it. Yeah, um, I don't understand the comedy aspect, though. No. Like, to me, nothing in that says that Lynch is taking that as a joke. No. And I don't know that anything... If, if there's movie. a joke, the joke is the fact that people willfully ignore the horror. Yeah. You know, I mean... That's not even a joke. That's just, like, commentary on right, sure, humanity. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, if, if you look at Ebert's, like, reviews in general, like, Ebert is very opposed to, like, what he considers to be exploitation. Yes. Like, anytime he sees something as being even a little bit exploitive, you know, one of my favorite movies ever, and this is completely off topic, is, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Ebert hates Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But to him, it's not, like, an examination. It's not It's not a horror movie in the truest sense, which is what that movie is. It's, it, it's exploitive, and that's why he hates it. And I think that Again, like, he feels that, like, he says that White Knight thing, and he, he truly feels, I think, that, like, like, Rosalini is, like, somehow being, like, wronged by performing in a movie and playing a role, and I don't know, like, it's just, 
Well, yeah, I mean, like, I, I disagree with him, certainly, on the whole, like, Isabella Rossellini thing of him trying to defend her. Yeah. She, she can defend herself um, if she thought, if she really did think it was that bad. And um, and I never looked up to see what she thought about it, like, after the fact. But it's like, she can defend herself. She doesn't need Roger Ebert to do it. Um, and it does matter what she thinks about it. Is like, you don't need to get on your white stallion. Yeah. If she's okay with it. What I don't understand, though, is it almost calls into question if Ebert really understands what movies are. <laughs> I mean, it's like... It's fiction, man. It's like... Yeah. It, it's not real. I mean, he brings up, like, pornography, and pornography is like... I mean, even pornography isn't real, but it's still real. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like... But, like, a narrative film, like a, like a, a motion picture, right. it's not real. Right. Like, you're supposed to... Whatever you take from it, whether it's well done or not well done, and he says it's a well done movie, so obviously it's effective because it affected him. Like that's it achieved its purpose. Right. So I don't. He's I don't. Work, he's working himself into a shoot. He is. <laughs> I don't know. How he, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Right. Like for a man that's so intelligent, right. like Ebert's, like right. maybe like one of the smartest critics ever. Right. Like over the course of his entire life, yeah. like to not understand. Exactly what Siskel said that that Lynch is playing you. Right. Lynch is Lynch right. is trying to evoke your reaction, yeah. and you fell for it. Like right. you know, you so I don't know. I mean, there's very few films that I've ever come out of and been like angry at the director for what they did to me. Sure, or felt like, yeah. oh my god, like what did I watch? Right. I mean, outside of like maybe some really like low budget Japanese like you know eighties like torture porn or whatever. Sure. But I mean, I, I mean, I felt I felt that way about really bad movies sometimes. Sometimes, but like not about like, um, not about like a movie that yeah challenged me. I, exactly. I think that's not. I think it's Siskel used the right word there. That, like, that's what Lynch does. Is Lynch challenges people. It is challenging, and it's the same thing like that Tarantino would do. Sure, you know, ten years later, eight years later, whatever. Yeah, and he would love that, right? Yeah, is that it? Like it challenges your expectation of what a movie is, yeah. and that's where. That's why cinema is like still relevant, even though people always say that like Hollywood's running out of ideas, and that's probably true in a lot of ways. But there's always going to be something that challenges your preconceived notion of what you know filmed art is, and that's what I mean. Blue Velvet is like maybe the best example of that in Lynch's entire filmography. Yeah, it's only because it's his first, you know, when he really like takes that challenge. Yeah, like head on. Um, okay, do you have any? Like, last thoughts at all? Lunch at all? No, again, like, I was... When you first brought this idea up, I was a little hesitant because, you know, when we, when we talked about the concept of this podcast, I was thinking more of the idea that we would say, like, a broad genre or, like, concept, mm-hmm. and I would come up with film. So, I was kind of hesitant because I didn't know if I wanted to talk about, like, the same director, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever, two-plus hours, but... It was really, it was it was good to go back and watch some of these movies. Like, it made me really appreciate, again, like, why I love David Lynch. Yeah. Um, I think it made me reevaluate in my scale, like, how high of esteem I hold him in, in terms of, like, directors. Not just American directors, but directors in general. Yeah. Like, I think that he's, I think he's a guy that's, like, masterful when he needs to be, and just is basically, like, fulfilling his own... I don't know, like, compulsions to just, like, make yeah. art. And it's 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 always impressive to see. Like, even yeah. when I don't like a Lynch movie, I never feel, like, worse for having seen it. 
Whereas, like... Let me ask you this before we finish. Has he made a bad one? Hmm. Nah. No? Yeah. I think out of his ten, he doesn't have a bad one. I mean, again, like, I I have different feelings towards all of his movies, but there's nothing you can sit down and objectively say this is not a good film. Whereas, you know, other great directors like Scorsese, um, Coppola, who's not a great director but has some great movies. You know, you can sit down and objectively say, like, like Kundun or whatever, it's not a good movie. You know, Jack is a terrible movie, but I don't think you can point at any Lynch movie and say this is a bad film. It's just, you know, maybe you don't enjoy it. Right. But there's always... And maybe that's because Lynch doesn't make like a ton of movies. That so he's yeah. like very careful about when he makes a film. Yeah, no, I think it's very, right. very, very deliberate. When he, he is. Makes it, he's so. waiting for the. Uh, he's waiting for the to yeah. the ideas. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be back here in a couple of weeks. Um, you know, with a new episode, and um, hopefully neither of us break our legs. Mm. Thanks. Thanks. You know it. How does it come? It comes like. On a TV in your mind. <laughs> you know, there's a, a, a line I've, I've always loved of, of Leonard Cohen. He said, if I knew where the good songs came from, I would go there more often. Absolutely. People, we want, I, we don't do anything without an idea. So they're beautiful gifts. And I always say, you desiring an idea is like a bait on a hook. You can pull them in. And if you catch an idea that you love, that's a beautiful, beautiful day. And you write that idea down so you won't forget it. And that idea that you caught might just be a fragment of the whole, whatever it is you're working on. But now you have even more bait thinking about that small fragment that little fish will bring in more and they'll come in and they'll hook on and more and more come in and pretty soon you might have a script or a chair or a painting or an idea for a painting but they come as in small more often than not small fragments I like to think of it as in the other room, the puzzle is all together, but they keep flipping in just one piece at a time. In the other room, over there. (laughs) In in a sense, David, there's always another room somewhere. That's a beautiful thing to think about. Let's think about it a bit. No, you think about it. (laughs) 